that's a range. Like I know it's not cool. I like David Foster Wallace. I love David Foster Wallace. I've always loved David Foster Wallace. Oh, yeah. um, I want to talk about DFW with you. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk. Um, yeah, Andy and I have gotten into some fights about DFW. Well, <laughs> really? he's very contentious online too. If you scroll the timeline, there's a lot of lovers, a lot of haters. Yeah, I know. There's a lot. I don't. Where are we falling in the culture? Is it? Is everyone hate him still, or are we? Is it move moved back to some I don't think appreciation? We so I don't know. Well, because he's de- well, since he's dead, and se- like since- I think we like him now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think there's always the set. Like, there's always that divide. He's a big dividing line in. in well, literature. I think it was uh-huh. a biopic, and now we like him. Oh, okay. Yeah, dude. Got it. They did the movie. I think it right. was. Did Siegel. they do like the Jason with, uh, Jason Sudeikis? Yeah, I saw Siegel. It was it was it was the the Muppets guy. It was the forgetting Sarah Marshall guy played him. Jason Sudeikis. Siegel. Siegel, Jason Siegel. Sudeikis yes, Siegel. Uh, Siegel. Siegel is, the, is guy, the guy that got cucked by Harry Styles. Uh, but yeah, DFW. Mm-hmm. He's 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 a big. I mean, literally, if you guys, if I mean, listeners will know this. If you hang out in any of the social media circles, online in the literary world, kind of, we've already said a little bit insufferable, depending on your personality. But like, he trends. He's dead. He's been dead like twenty years now, and like. It, you know he trends like every couple months he'll trend and there's this huge blow up and there's like oh there's a bunch of people that say oh that he's a genius one of the greatest american writers and then there's people that he's a misogynist you know he's uh uh you know mary carr is telling stories or whatever about how he was like rude or uh or you know he was a fucking drug addict too people forget that so i mean i'm sure he had mood swings and all that kind of shit but yeah i mean I, it's hard to think of a, a kind of a contemporary or from the contemporary period writer who divides people more in DFW. And I, mm-hmm. I like the, one of the things that, like I said, Lee and I hit it off kind of right away because he's unafraid. She would just say, be like, yeah, I like DFW. And then, the, yeah, deal with that, bitch. Yeah, like deal yeah, with it. What are you going to say? one in yeah. the program who read Infinite Jest. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> one of the, no, there were a few that like liked it. They read uh, it. Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the pretend to read stuff, but... i know yeah it's like this i've never seen i mean writers be that kind of loved and hated at the same time i guess that Mm -hmm. means you're successful i guess that means that like you're good if you have that many haters and lovers but yeah i don't know i'm just curious i always wanted to get your thoughts on dfw and how he's how he's viewed you know in the culture largely the literary world uh how you personally feel i mean yeah anything go for it yeah i don't i mean I think when I started reading him, he was okay in the culture. People still liked him when I was 20 and whatever. Worshipped. I think we were in the worship stage and there was that cliche of like every guy you and Dave would bring up DFW or something. I never had that date. Uh, But yeah, that that was the era in which I started reading his work. I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. I may say male is entirely hostile. No! Resources. Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so. I'm Andrew Whitstaff. As always, I'm here with Sophie Wiener, and you are listening to Heavy Board. And we're recording this on December 11th, 2022. Today, 
author Lee Madalone joins us to discuss everything from writing to, well, whatever comes up. This is the first in our interview series where writers come on to chat with us about, well, writing and anything else we feel like, quite frankly. And I'm very glad that Lee is our first author to come on Heavy Board because not only is she the perfect person to set the bar very high, the way we like it on Heavy Board, but also because she's my friend. Mm -hmm. I first met Lee Madalone in the fall of 2016 when we both moved to a city in southwest Louisiana to begin our MFA degrees. City. Interesting. <laughs> Small city. Sure. Lee had come from living several years in New Orleans previously, me from never having lived anywhere but Baltimore, my hometown. But soon, I found that Lee and I hit it off. She was also from the Mid-Atlantic area, Virginia, fairly close to where Sophie and I both grew up, a few hundred miles away from one another most of our lives and brought together through our shared love of literature. How strange the world sometimes is. How small. But there was a specific instance when I knew Lee and I would be friends. It was during our first meeting of the MFA program in 2016. Naturally, we were nervous. Everyone was. We barely knew each other beyond our first names at the time, and we all had to introduce ourselves, one by one. Then, something happened. I can't even remember what it was. Something dumb, stupid, foolish, embarrassing. Lee and I met eyes across the room, both immediately understanding silently, the ridiculousness of the event we were all forced to sit through. <laughs> we both stifled a laugh and looked away. Oh yes, I knew then that we would be friends. <laughs> Lee was the most experienced writer in our cohort. She intimidated even those who had already completed most of their coursework. Already writing a regular column, having many publications of fiction, nonfiction, flash fiction, essays. All the other MFA candidates hung their heads in shame as she rattled off her resume to the room on that first day. She let herself be known, and it was impressive, ballsy. Lee was on the fiction side of things. I was on the poetry side, that awful dividing line MFA programs force on students. And despite that, Lee always had the most impressive knowledge of contemporary poetry out of any fiction writer I'd met. She knew names and books better than half the poetry candidates in our cohort, never afraid to read and pass judgment on a work outside of her genre, a true writing talent. She can see the vision in works of art. Rare listeners. And looking back on this vague memory now, it seems like that was over two decades ago, but it was only a few short years back. And since that fateful fall in 2016, Lee Madeline has gone on to pen her debut novel, Homemaking, published in 2020 from Harbor Perennial, available wherever books are sold, as well as linked in the description of this episode, listeners. She has been published in many magazines and journals, literary and otherwise, including Denver Quarterly, Hobart, Lit Hub, Electric Literature, the LA Review of Books, Book Slut, Vice Munchies, and The Rumpus, among many, many others. She taught for several years at Clemson University in South Carolina before leaving academia for greener pastures and is currently a mentor for young writers at Middle Tennessee State University in their MTSU Write program, where she helps young writers grow and blossom. And of course, Lee is working on many projects where we are all just waiting for the rest of the literary world to catch up with her. Lee, thank you so much for being here. Did I miss anything? Misremember it? 
I don't think so. That was very lovely and flattering. And uh, I don't think I remember the first time we met. I'm sort of going back to that that awkward classroom now. Um, those desks, yeah, that, dude. Those desks. Those, those desks acting like we were in the like, fifth fucking grade. Mm. But yeah, I was thinking about Lake Charles today and just how absurd that time was it's sort of incomparable if you haven't been or lived there like what our day-to-day existence was like i'm sure andy is so oh, i heard about it quite a bit a lot um i you know was in a much more <laughs> i think uh college town kind of situation <laughs> something yeah. a little closer they would still call it a city i did not agree. The but, city you were uh-huh. living in was three times the population of Lake Charles. It was Charles, still, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Think. Um, but yes, I heard routinely all of the all of the stuff of Lake Charles. Um, we texted yeah. and all of the hot hot goss of the program. I got to <laughs> tell you, it was such a thrill because you know no one no one had anything fun to say in my program except for me. So I was I heard about you. <laughs> as like the person who was willing to say things. Oh, okay. <laughs> so okay. Jealous that he had that. Because <laughs> I would look around the room and I'd be waiting for somebody to make that eye contact with me, you know? Yeah. yeah. I didn't that ha- person. It, it didn't happen for uh, at least the first year of my program. And then people were like, I see it now. This is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's always. Yeah. It, it always. did come, but it was also mostly from... Uh, also, in my case, fiction writers. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. They all are. They all are. And you're back in Virginia now? I I am in Virginia. It's strange to be in like a quote-unquote normal place. I feel like I've just lived in a lot of strange places. Louisiana is just yeah not not normal the things you get used to whether you're in new orleans or lake charles and now i'm in a very like conventional safe like infrastructure sound <laughs> all of that stuff is bizarre, but i guess andy you're in a weird place I'm, I'm envious of that yeah it's strange it's a good place to write quite frankly yeah yeah but you're in a weird place that can still feel very normal yeah, I it's a huge it. fucking city. It's yeah. a big American city. Yeah. Like, the weirdest I feel like the weirdest thing about it is being in the desert and not being from the desert. Yeah. Almost yeah. everybody that lives here is not from here. But, yeah. Like if you're Is a local, that true? I mean, there's, sure, there's plenty of people that grew up here, but like if you grew up here, it's like I meet more people that moved here than mm. like actually grew up here. And I mean, you know, I taught students at the college here for a while. Yeah, so I was gonna like, say, like your students a lot of are them like are like born and raised but then i would say maybe almost half were like came here because of the mining industry like their parents work in the uh, mining industry or yeah like the food and beverage industry or i mean there's right. a, a lot of weird a lot of government because we have the air force base here so a lot of government workers and yeah i mean the city's huge everybody thinks of the strip in vegas but like i mean that's only four miles of like yeah. the center of the city and this city's like over two and a half million people that live hmm. just in this little fucking valley in the middle of nowhere. So it's huge compared to what people think of it. Where you just see like the bright lights. It does look weird though, because then it's just like the only tall buildings are the uh, the huge hotels. Right. Right. It's like a. I mean. No, you go ahead. Well, I just it's like a midwestern city where like there's like hmm. no tall buildings at all, and then there's like one. 
Yeah, I was just going to ask about the the literary scene. I know you guys just lost the believer, so I don't know the controversy behind that. But I forgot that happened. What's I was is there a literary scene? <laughs> yeah, we have, we have the Black Mountain Institute here. Right. So there's some of that. And then it's mostly through UNLV, though, for yeah. the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, are there literary scenes? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, literary. like UNLV is like the Black Mountain School, isn't it? Right. Like, it's, that's what it is. It's like an offshoot. Or are they like of, a, consider themselves as being part of it? I think or so. Or associated with it? And I know um, Amanda Fortini, uh, Walter Kern's wife, she is always, I'm, I'm, we're mutuals on, on uh, Twitter and she's always like doing stuff here cause she's a Beverly Rogers fellow at the black mountain. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, you really don't do much as like a fellow, you give like a couple readings, you know, and yeah. then like kind of, you just get the stipend and get to write and yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. But, uh, have you, have you gone to events or things in, I haven't because I lived here for like four months before the fucking pandemic ruined everything. In right. The world. Right. Uh, Mm-hmm. which i want to get to eventually yeah <laughs> with uh, how that went for your uh your 2020 yeah. book launch yeah uh all right so we're we're good we're drinking stuff i'm drinking some scotch sophie said bourbon lee said whiskey mm-hmm. so we're all in the same family very writerly that we're all drinking hard liquor this early in the day liquor i'm drinking a tea i'm having water i'm just have all the liquids you know yeah i have water you never i have seltzer water and i have some watered down bourbon there yeah, you gotta, go gotta water it down yeah yeah <laughs> we like it basic bitch is always better yeah that's how <laughs> i do uh and leah i wanted to start this off just pretty simply just like your background family life uh i know you've written a few essays about this uh you've even written some interesting stuff where it's like ooh, the line between autofiction fiction family life all that oh, kind of stuff i'd love to pick some, <laughs> your brain on autofiction <laughs> we'll get there and listeners can find all that online we'll link it in the description as, as always uh but i just wanted to know like yeah like like where did you how did this start you know where you grew up kind of in the i know we have similar backgrounds like i said the mid-atlantic area but Tell our listeners a little bit uh, about your growing up, any traumas, crazy shit. <laughs> yeah, um, let's just get it all out there. We make just sh- met you. Yeah, want to know sure who you fucked you up and exactly how. List list the various traumas at the on the podcast page, mm-hmm. um, please. Um, yeah, that helps sell books now, dude. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, I mean, I grew up on side of DC. I had a somewhat um, conventional suburban upper middle class existence, I suppose. Um, your dad kind. is a doctor, Andy. My yeah. mom is a doctor. Yes, the yeah. best kind, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, and I went to the University of Virginia and then I left Virginia. I, I went to New York and sort of tried to work in publishing and um, in the book world and did all the book and magazine things. And kind of hated New York and was like, I don't want to be a part of it. And then went and spent a month or five weeks or something in a cabin in rural Maine by myself and read Infinite Jess. <laughs> like, okay. Uh, I didn't talk to anybody. Really. <laughs> and then I sort of went down to New Orleans around Halloween and was like, oh, I'll stay a month or so. And then ended up staying four years almost. And then went to grad school with Andy. And uh, that's up until grad school. But yeah, I don't know. Um, 
what what's the most interesting or least interesting part of that? Well, I'm curious. I mean, you said you you know you tried the whole publishing industry thing. I think that's sort of one of the young, you know, aspiring writer goals, right? We all sort of mm-hmm. think like, yeah, we could do that. Um, yeah. But you also said you hated NYC. Was it the industry? Was it the people? Was it just the general cost of living? All of it? I mean, I'm sure all of it to some degree, but you know. Vibes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Vibes. I mean, I, I had never liked it and never had done anything for me. I think I don't, you know, I was a little claustrophobic, the skyscrapers, all the dirt and the people. And I just, none of it aligned with the things that I value about day to day living. And so, I knew before I even, you know, stepped foot on Roosevelt Island, which is where I lived for the first month, which is also very weird, taking the tram over. Um, I don't think that's anyone's fantasy of New York living. But anyway, even before I got there, I knew it wasn't a place I loved, but I was like, I got to try this out or I'm going to regret it if I don't just fucking try. So, you know, I, I think I was like an intern at a fashion magazine and editorial assistant for my first job and like got paid maybe nothing or 10 bucks an hour or something <laughs> like that. Uh, I worked at a on-demand publisher, um, for a little while, also very low pay. Um, I worked at a bookshop that's now closed, which was great in, um, book court in Brooklyn. And then I got a job as a, um, a production assistant at a big art book publisher, which was the sort of best job. But I just don't like being told where to go and how long <laughs> I have to be there. So like I had a nine to five and it was like, I was living in New York and I was still making no money. And I think after a month I was like, everyone is still just like standing around wasting a lot of time. Like I, this isn't an intellectual, at least what I was doing, I'm not saying all of publishing is this, but my experience of it was just like, this is just a normal job and there's no real magic. It's still a job and it's not altogether engaging for me. And I had this incredible, like beautiful Italian boss and I wrote to her, I was like, I got to get out of here. And she was like, I really commend you for having the courage to quit, which I feel like is sort of the opposite uh, response <laughs> that I expected. But it's probably bad that she told me that because then for years and years after, I could barely hold a job for like longer than a year. I was like, I got to get out of here if it doesn't feel right. But anyway, that was sort of my New York experience in a nutshell. I learned a lot um, from the jobs and from dating bad men, probably more than anything. But you know, that's what I hear from a lot of my friends who lived in New York is that a lot of their experience was, you know, dating bad men. But uh, and this was before the MFA for you. Before I was like 20, 21. Yeah. Fresh out of undergrad, ready to take on the world. Yes. A confusing time. Yeah. Terrible time, I think. I don't know if you guys had better experiences right after undergrad, but it was very disorienting. Oh, no. I went straight to the MFA after undergrad, but I had a really <laughs> unconventional undergrad. Um, Where did you go? I went to Towson University. Mm-hmm. Where Sophie um, and I met, yeah. Right. Well, well we, we met in community college before that. We met that, in community yeah. college before that, yeah. We both went to other schools. And then we both ended up at community college and we both met in a writing class along with my husband who was in the same writing class. So we all met there. Um, My husband is not a writer. I want to make that very clear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I feel like somehow he doesn't listen to this, but I feel like he'd be like offended if I become, didn't clarify. He's become a recurring character on it, though. <laughs> okay, so we can we talk can, about him a little bit. We occasionally hear him do dishes. Yeah. Oh. Like I said the okay. ambiance. It's like more. <laughs> it's good parasocial content for. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. No. We. Um, I yeah. I applied to all of the programs right during my last um, semester. Uh, last year, I guess. Uh, yeah, I graduated the year before you. And yeah. I, it took me two years to get into MFA program. Um, I got rejected yeah. flat out the first time. Like first but time. I also, yeah, without the, the undergrad experience, like I had no idea about MFAs. Like I had no idea that that was even an option until maybe, you know, I was a junior, senior. Mm-hmm. Like I had mm-hmm. no idea about what I was going to do after until this option was revealed to me by a teacher. Um, so I'm always curious when someone like goes out of undergrad and then takes some time and then ends up at the MFA, how, um, like how you were already sort of aware of that. It was sort of um, I was guess, something you had in mind. I mean, UVA has a pretty strong MFA program. Uh, and so yeah. their undergrad, especially their poetry undergrad at the time, I don't know what it looks like now, but at the time there was only a poetry concentration for undergrads. So you could major in poetry, but there was not a fiction or nonfiction track. So you could really intensely study creative writing. So I was an English major with a um, concentration in modern studies. And then I just took all the creative writing classes and workshops and did independent studies and got a grant, but it was never a formal thing. And so like just being, you know, my teachers were the MFA students and just being in that environment is a pretty strong community in Charlottesville as far as um, literary things go. So I just was always aware of it. And I don't know, felt like it was the thing that you did if you wanted to teach. And I was like, it, as sort of connecting to the other point, it's like, well, teaching sounds pretty good if you like get the summers off and the winters off. Wow, awesome. So I was like, all right, I guess I have to go and get an MFA to be able to teach. So I think that was the logic. Oh, yes, we were all sold it. Yeah, we were all sold the, uh, <laughs> the, the professor's life. It's, it's good marketing. I mean, it's glad, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the, I wanted to know, like we talked about your background, Lee and I had similar backgrounds, so we hit it off with that right away. Both of our parents were medical professionals. We kind of got that. I wanted to like just kind of like this thing, writing, like this thing that we're all drawn to, what drew us all together, what reason we all know each other for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, what drew you to writing? Like throughout childhood, were you a big reader, big writer, um, comic books, any of that, you know? Yeah, my my mom was a big reader. I don't know if your dad had time or when he wasn't, you know, in surgery was reading. But my I remember my whole house was filled with books. And I always saw my mom reading and reading long books and reading good books, not like pulpy stuff, nothing against that. But it was like, you know, she was interested in literary fiction. And um, yeah, I don't know if it was because of her influence. But even from when I was, you know, four or five, I was always reading. And I felt like I had something to prove or like I was like, trying to suck up as much knowledge as possible, like trying to read books that I didn't understand what the fuck was being said, but like I wanted to read it. And like, I wanted to be the person that had read it. Like, I feel like it was like a status thing or something, even before I understood what that meant. Um, But there was pure joy in it too. It wasn't just bullshit. Um, So I was always reading and I don't 
I was good at writing, but you know, did you guys take AP classes or did you do? Um... <clears throat> I wasn't that smart. Oh, I was an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, they always make you do these timed writing exercises. They're a nightmare. And so I don't know. We just fucking had to do that a lot. And I was good at it, but no one was like, you should be a poet or a fiction writer. I don't know where that happened. Maybe in college. I think. I was I thought I was gonna go into politics when I got in DVA. I thought I was gonna do like international relations. So uh switched gears a little bit. Growing up around around the DC bubble, dude, I mean that's, that's I true. have a lot of friends in high school that went yeah. on to be lobbyists, that went on to yeah, do all that. It's good money in it. It's kind of like the town business, like the company town business and like that's when you grow true. up around DC and that kind of, you know, within forty five minutes, an hour and a half of DC. A lot of people worked there, but then lived in Virginia or Maryland and, and all that. And really, it's like I, people that aren't from the mid-Atlantic area might not know this. But I mean, yeah, like that area is very concentrated compared to the rest of the country. Kind of like like those weird kind of New England area down to like Maryland, Virginia areas. Like everything's kind of smashed in there and you have almost anything you could want. Like there's industry, there's medical professions, you can go into right. like all the universities and even writing. But yeah, I'm always curious about that. And like, you know, the studies are always, oh, if you have books in the house, you're more literate. And if you see your parents doing it, you know, yeah, that's always the case. But it's always crazy, like writing. Like writing is this one thing that's like, people look at you like differently, like, right? When you tell them, they like, go, oh, I'm a writer, like kind of thing. Right. They're I'm like, trying to think oh. of the like. What do people say to you when you say that? What's the first thing they say? Usually, Is there a... Yeah, I mean, I usually don't say I'm a writer because I have nothing like to say it. But I say I'm like a teacher. Uh huh. And then with that, they're just like, "Oh, well, how nice! It's very nice. How sweet! How sweet! Yeah. For you to sacrifice your life for." You say your yeah, jobs yeah. like um like they're more impressive than they are. I teach college students. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, then and I don't tell yeah. them I'm an adjunct right away. They just assume, so I just let them assume that like I'm like tenured somewhere or whatever. Well, it's like I was at the dog park today, and this I was just talking to somebody about you know I was teaching at Clemson or at LSU. He's like, oh, are you a professor? And I was like, sure, but I didn't want to get into the conversation of like, right. no, I'm a lecturer. A lecturer means this, and like, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole thing. It's a fucking conversation. So no, nah, I wasn't ready for that. And most people don't give a shit. Like, if you start explaining right. to them how, like, this, like, field that's, like, super niche works, people are like, oh, I don't care. Like, yeah, also, yeah. people love to be like, and a lecture is a really good gig. Yeah. It's a really good like, gig. Oh. You just have, like, a 5-5 five, five load. It's not a big yeah, deal. <laughs> 25K a year. Yeah. There's no time for you to write, but, you know, it's really good. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's my charity work and my work work. That's what it is, right? It's it's they, like the college teaching profession has become this kind of like charity work, like like they expect you to do like charity as part of. Well, the job. yeah, it's volunteerism. Like, yeah, volunteer. Yeah, volunteer your time. Do more. Yeah. Go above. Well, you designed this class, even though we pay you twenty one hundred dollars for sixteen weeks of work. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was. I was sort of talking another um, full-time lecturer recently about this. He, he'd been doing it a lot longer than me, but we were both just commiserating about the sort of trap of um, prestige. Like, oh, if you stay here, you're a capital W writer, you're a teacher, you're an artist, you know, isn't that cool? Isn't that illustrious? And there is the guilt too of like, oh, don't the students need you? And like, you need to like be here and for them. And, I mean, it is hard. I mean, 
I love teaching. I really do. And I love the students and I love my classes and I loved being in that, but it's like, how much can you really put up with? Yeah. It's like, I have to pay my rent and like, I would like to be able to get a promotion one day or like be rewarded for my effort. Like in other industries in a normal world, like you do a good job, you get a bonus, you get a raise, you get a promotion. Like that's not how it works. Like I didn't, I have my first real full-time job outside of academia this year and I could negotiate for a salary. And I was like, Oh, this is a thing that people do. Like you can ask for more. Yeah. Yeah. You don't just suck it up and take it and be grateful about it. Contracts. (laughs) Yeah. What? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's wild. It's yeah. I mean, it's I was it's crumbling. Like the it's crumbling. It's really strange how it got this way. I'm not entirely sure. Well, yeah, and for but... just context for like younger listeners who maybe haven't <laughs> dipped their toe into this yet and are still sort of figuring out like what they're um, interested in pursuing in the future. You know, I think a mm-hmm. lot of us tend to like think of teaching as like this great thing because chances are, if you like to write and you like to read, you had at least one really good English teacher that was like, you know, the English teacher for you. Right. Mm-hmm. That was really inspiring. And you thought, yeah, I'm going to be that. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, you know, um, what you don't realize is all of the, you know, work that has to happen behind it and all of the pain that goes into it and all of the extra hours that uh, isn't teaching. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, go ahead, Mandy. I was just the stress of it, like just the, the stress of having to deal with all that, like the bureaucracy behind it too, which is the mm-hmm. thing that, you know, everybody always, there's fucking articles every week with, oh, the bureaucracy, the administration keeps ballooning. And this has happened in a lot of the kind of what you would call the prestige careers, medicine, higher mm-hmm. ed, you know, all that kind of stuff, where there's just this ballooning of administrators that are taking the bulk of everything. Um, and then they're just kind of diminishing, diminishing. I don't, but I mean, it's more than that, too, because it's like this like 50-year trend of eliminating, you know, full-time positions. Full-time. And, and yeah. tenure just doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it just doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I don't I don't know what you even need to do, honestly. I mean, it's sort of a trite comment, but like, I don't know what you need to do to get a full time job anymore. Um, how many books by major publishers you need and like, it's a minimum I, of one, according to <laughs> if you want to a minimum of one, yeah. for sure. Yeah, for sure. But I don't know. But it's, it's so sad. competitive that you have people that'll have five books out and they still aren't getting full-time tenure track. So it's like, right. you know, even if you have four or five books, you've been doing it for a decade and you're still getting handed these scraps because there just isn't anything there. Like the jobs right. just don't. And I mean, I blame the previous generations because obviously it happened on their watch, but I, I just don't know. I rail against Gen X a lot uh, <laughs> with, the, with the rejection. Well, also this wonderful thing happened where suddenly we decided we could all be writers and right. so decided we were all going to have a writing program. Yeah. The yes. balloon-y and the somehow we have to figure out how to make them competitive. And right. even right. now, you know, I mean, what's going to draw your students except somebody who is very recognizable. Um and yeah. Even, yeah. The competition is just even the jobs. So like if you have a couple books out, you're applying for a job. Great. You're in a stack of like, what is it? Over 500 probably now for most of these. If you want to teach in an MFA program, 
yeah, I would say it's probably 500, maybe even a thousand. I don't know. I'm not on these committees. I've talked with a few people that are on these committees and stuff, mm. but it's, yeah, I mean, you have, it's a shit, you know, it's crapshoot. It's like getting into an oh, MFA and you have teachers yeah. leaving and swapping programs all the time. I mean, yeah. it's just all of the moving around, but yeah. 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 I mean, it, when I mentor um, the students that I work with at um, MTSU, they're usually like a little bit older. They have a lot, you know, they have a, they might have a full-time job. They have families. All It's sort of like a low res program, which is an interesting group to work with. Um, but I try to be as honest with them as possible about the reality of getting a job with writing at all. Like whether it's like copy editing or copywriting or you know trying to get a teaching job like i try not to i feel like it's my duty to be like this is probably not going to happen for you like right. i'm not gonna yeah. i'm like i'll fully support and like be like if your writing is wonderful and great and like you should deserve like i write letters of recognition all the time like i'm not against like supporting writing but also i'm not going to bullshit you about what your career viability is in the writing world like i yeah i would oh, yeah. be a disservice <laughs> it's cutthroat i mean it's and it's, yeah. it's, it keeps shrinking too. I want to talk to, we want to get to this eventually, but we can get to it now. Fuck it. We're like, yeah, like just everything's kind of crumbling and like people aren't buying books. They're not reading books, which is really the big thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And it just, there's, there's less reward even if you do make it all the way to the end of that tunnel. So like mm-hmm. I say, this is the issue with MFA programs. You not necessarily, but like it is this kind of, you know, once you're in an MFA program and you're trying to get to that world, you know, you are competing with even your teachers because the rewards mm-hmm. are so few. There's only so many grants. There's only so many right. prizes. There's only so many publications that happen a year. You're fighting with everybody else. You're in the ring with your mentor, advisor, all of that. So there's this less of this kind of taking you under a wing and like guiding you through this. Like, I always say, and I'm interested about this too. I want to get to like how you got your book and all this publication process and all that. But like, you know, even the simple things like, I mean, maybe this is just a fantasy I'm making up, but I always hear like writers of a generation ago, the Gen X writers will say, oh, they went to a writing, not even an MFA, just like a, a good undergrad writing program or something. The professor was working with them for four years. They saw their book and they're like, hey, you know, this is actually pretty good manuscripts. I'm going to send this along to my agent or my editor or whoever mm-hmm. to see what they think kind of thing. And that would give you that kind of connection into the world that everybody is so hungry and desperate for. And that just yeah. doesn't happen anymore because if they're yeah. going to give you like something to their client, well, it's like cut, taking out room for them to be in the client pool with everybody else. Uh, not that it's yeah. like, malicious, not that people are doing this all oh, like you can't do it, but like there is that level of we're competing. <laughs> like it's, it's right. not everybody gets to have the prestige or the publications or yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of that, but I, I feel like the writing world and the MFA world is so competitive and sort of like, I don't know. There's a, there's, I, maybe there's a, to me, I feel like there's a false sense of like, there's not enough room for everybody in an MFA program. Like, I don't know if you both feel that way or if it's justified, but I'm like, there's like a competitiveness built in that I feel like prevents like honest, like decent relationships from forming an MFA sometimes. It's like, you know, even if one person gets an agent, it means someone else isn't going to get an agent. It's like, you know, like, I don't know. There's just, I try to stay out of it, I guess, is the point of a lot of it because it just feels toxic and like doesn't really make you a better writer, get the work done or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, if you think about just the scene in general, it's rather depressing. So, uh, 
for everybody listening that's excited to try and do <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, well, all that matters is the writing. Like, really, at the end of the day, like, I'm, I don't want to sum up the whole podcast, but like, at the end of a pandemic and publishing a book with a publisher, like, a decent, very good publisher, like, it's still like, at the end of the day, like, all that matters is you sitting down and writing and doing the work. Like, what anyone else says, or how many book sales, or like, the conversations and social world around it, like, none really matter. Like, it's just like your personal relationship with the with I don't want to use that metaphor of the page, but you know your personal relationship with your writing. That's like I don't know. I think Andy and you and I have been talking about that a little bit about just like having that as part of your life regularly and the importance of cultivating that. So yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it's like I, protecting it. Yeah. Sorry. Go on, Sue. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's this idea that like I'm a big believer that anyone and I hope you can forgive me if if you feel this way, <laughs> but I'm a big believer that anyone who claims that they're like writing for anyone but themselves like I mean obviously like yes we have an audience in mind right but I don't mm -hmm. think anyone starts writing because they're like I'm doing this for the good of the universe right right <laughs> I don't well, think that deep know, down so... <laughs> yeah I mean I yeah. don't think that even the people who think that they're doing that deep down are doing it for that reason right, right. like I think yeah. that first and foremost like you if you wanted to change the world like you could go into politics you could lobby you could right. do 800 other things that would be more useful than writing poems totally. or like <laughs> a novel and yeah I, I I went to a program where it was asserted to me by a teacher that that is you know that's just privilege and you know you basically that's <laughs> wrong with us <sighs> I was kind of like, I think that's maybe disingenuous. <laughs> privileged <laughs> bitch. You... <laughs> what, what part is privilege? I, you know, the you write for yourself. Apparently, uh, <laughs> is privilege. So, got it. Uh -huh. um, okay. Yeah, yeah, I was a little bit. So that was always very interesting to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I know. I'm. I very much agree. It's about really cultivating your own relationship to your writing and that should be the thing that matters and it should be the thing that makes you happy or that should fulfill you i mean right. obviously there's endless frustration that comes with trying to get published um yeah. and I'm, i imagine especially in the world of fiction i know like it's very different um we've talked about this at least a little bit right that for poets typically you submit and you submit and you submit to um, for prizes to get your first book published. And in the fiction world, you have the opportunity to go and get an agent. Um, but there is a whole other uh, laundry list of things that you have to do in order to get that agent. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm mostly ignorant to this process. I know, Andy, you've been through it a little bit. Uh, you have obviously had some great success with it. Um I am sort of curious about your road to that while you were at, um, if I understand correctly, that you, this was going on while you were at the MFA. Yeah. Um, I, the, my current agent, I, she reached out to me. I think it was my second year of my MFA and, um, I had had this happen once before and I think it was just because I have like a very kind of crappy rudimentary website with links to published work and I don't know who told me that advice but it was probably one of the best writing pieces of like writing business advice like have a website like where people can go mm -hmm. um 
So like I, and I was published, I've always published in smaller magazines. And so it was like some small story. Um, and my current agent had just read it and, um, reached out to me. I had my email on my website and she was like, Hey, read this. Do you have a novel at all? Maybe by chance. And this had happened once before where an agent reached out to me and I asked me that question and I said, no. And so I sort of knew that this was coming. Like, okay, I, I don't know where I learned the lesson, but, and maybe I think it's probably more true now than ever, but like, I knew that like a short story collection is probably not going to get you an agent or help you sell a book. Um, you needed a novel, unfortunately. I mean, I love the novel too, but I was first a short story writer. So it was always sad to me that you well, couldn't sell a short story collection. And most people are, right? Most people yeah. are in the MFA at least. Like that's, yes. from what I understand, that's what they encourage you to write. At least in my program, I know yeah. they mostly yeah. discouraged long form. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's anyone's fault. It is definitely more difficult just functionally to t talk about a novel in a workshop. It's it's too much, really. So mm -hmm. I, I understand why it would be discouraged. Um, but yeah, there. I feel like there were a couple of us in grad school who submitted novels or parts of novels and had to break it up. And it it is hard to do that. <laughs> and so I get it, but yeah. Well, the, and it's gotta be hard as the person who submitted it, right? If you keep having to break it up and ha yes. you're having people look at it in these pieces and I'm sure, yes. you know, you're sitting there during it in silence, <laughs> having to take it and yeah. saying, yes, but what about these three things from my last submission that you've all right. clearly forgotten about? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's just kind of a pain to do in workshops, so I get it. Um, but yeah, short stories were always the thing that you were taught. It was like the sort of holy grail of writing. Like if you could write a good short story, you'll be revered forever and ever and you'll ever. You'll be Raymond Carver. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We'll all be Raymond Carver, even if we don't want to be. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, so I happened to have like a, a novel that I was working on in grad school. I started it when I was in New Orleans and was workshopping it. And I think I got to that point where you're like, shit, I don't know what to do with this anymore. Right. And so it was just fortuitous timing. Um, I needed someone else to look at it. And so I s emailed her the draft. Um, and then she read it over a weekend and was like exuberant about it, wanted to talk and represent me it was sort of a fairy tale so uh, it's definitely not the norm agent story um I definitely got lucky but I I worked with her for maybe four or five months on the manuscript and she was really um aside from my grad school peers and um professors the most attentive person editorially um and it was that was a really interesting process working with her. And then we went to pitch the book in like right around like this weird time now in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, which is usually a dead time. And it was out like a very long time. And it was the so fucking stressful. It was waiting, uh, like waiting and getting like a rejection or like, we like this, but right. and then it just sort of happened around like a couple days for, I think it was a week after I graduated from the MFA or something. Cause I graduated early and then what they don't tell you is you have to get approved by like not only your editor, but like all of these other fucking people at the publisher have to be on board and they have to read it. And so that was like a weekend. It was hell just like waiting, like fuck, fuck, fuck. So yeah, then it just happened like, right before Christmas and it was great. And uh, yeah, that's the spark notes version of my agenting journey. And that is like <clears throat> Lisa, like she's one of the rarer kind of 
instances of having an agent reach out to you but like it does happen listeners so like just like we said already like just what matters is you doing the writing so like you know we were in the process lee was in the process just doing the writing doing the mfa thing sending out to the magazines you know doing the drafts doing the workshops kind of and then it eventually something will happen so either you're soliciting agents on your own or they're coming to you or like there's just a couple of different ways it can happen you know nobody really has the same story especially now <clears throat> you always hear like these older writers like boomer writers and stuff they'll be like oh well i just kept sending away and got it in there and it's like yeah like that's not quite how it works now but it's still like that's it, it can happen if you keep doing the work like it will happen if you just keep doing good work and you know it kind of unless you're really really bad yeah unless you're just not good yeah then you're just not any good well uh, i'm curious about your guys relationship to like online publishing versus paper publishing is because like when i graduated from undergrad like online magazines literary magazines were new like that wasn't really hadn't been around and there was a lot of reticence around like is this still good to publish a story or a poem in these online forums and I kind of just like winked for it. Uh, I don't know. And that's like where I published a lot of my work. Some of it was like in old school paper, but like I, I like the online sort of weird things, but I don't know if now that's totally gone away, but um, that was that was a part of my, like I felt like I could finish a story if I published it, even if it wasn't in like the New Yorker. Like I was like, okay, I can put this away and move on. It's like a CV line, even if it's like something no one's ever heard of, like, right. which I don't think is generally the advice that like, is given like just publish something in a weird place but i don't know i just think it's an interesting conversation that i never really talk about with anybody so i'm curious what you guys think it, they will give that uh advice to poets mm. they will say just you know publish yeah. publish 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 mm. publish but it's also i think a lot easier to get publish um at least in journals as a poet maybe not in like the top journals <clears throat> but mm -hmm. there are so many out there um and so many that are so, so very niche. I mean, I imagine the same mm -hmm. is true for fiction. Um, we, but I think the... because poets have more, it, it's a smaller commitment. You know, you can submit several mm -hmm. things and not be losing an entire body of work, like to one mm -hmm. place. Also, for me, I think when we were in undergrad, online journals were coming in and print journals were starting to disappear. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was pretty obvious or they were shifting to maybe we put out uh one print copy a year and the right. rest of it is online you know yeah. we put it out like some kind of cumulative this was the best of mm -hmm. um and that was a thing but I think one thing that at least I was sort of torn on um was like a lot of the hottest journals that were still like top tier were the ones that were still putting out print and those were the ones that were going to put you in the hands of um the best writers the writers right. that were in positions that might get you noticed um mm -hmm. and then endless other positions but we do still say like yeah more people have access to you if you publish in an online journal right um right. will more people necessarily read you no. Well, no, mm -hmm. yeah, nobody reads journals. Yeah, even <laughs> even writers are, are not to read you. Yeah. yeah, people are going to read you if they, you know, see you posted by uh, one of the. Not it doesn't even have to be like one of the big journals. It could just be a literary journal from a well-known school or like a decent program, right? Mm -hmm. like, I mean, the thing with these like 
the way like the online and Lee, we're 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 roughly around the same age, all three of us here. Mm-hmm. You graduated undergrad around twenty twelve ish. Twenty eleven winter twenty eleven yeah winter twenty eleven um, yeah so like around that time was yeah this was when the smartphone social media apps mm-hmm. were taking over everything and this mm-hmm. kind of it was like when we got out of undergrad. The, the the online journals were yeah were garbage right it, it hadn't made the switch yet. we we haven't done the switch we hadn't done like the where the big time new yorkers and even like the the smaller kind of mid-tier ones start they didn't start to switch to online yet because everything mm-hmm. just we were still in that kind of transition period so it is interesting to see this i prefer i think if you want to get read the online stuff get you read because people can just click on it and see it whenever it's up there in the servers, right? You just Google the name or like Lisa, you have a website. You, somebody can go to your website and just mm-hmm. click on all the little links to the publications, all the little websites that we've got published on and stuff. So that helps. But there was this like rejection of, on, you know, like it's not as good or not as prestigious. Mm-hmm. Not and as there, prestigious. There, yeah. is, there is something to seeing your work in a, in a printed page. Like I, I like yes. seeing the printed page, but then it's also like, yeah, you know, you write for yourself and all, but at the same time, you know, you don't want to put on a play that nobody sees, right? Like you right. don't want to just like right. put on something that like nobody goes to or, or any of this. And it's hard enough, you know, just or getting like your friends and family. Or like publish in the magazine that's yeah. called like Pussy Trash, <laughs> volume 42, yeah. you know. Yeah. Even though you know they'll take your work, you know, right. like, the Pussy Warrior review. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends what your end goal. I mean, is, right? like, I don't know. I might publish in Pussy Warrior. Pussy Warrior. <laughs> Pussy Trash actually sounds kind of great. You should start that Pussy Trash magazine. Yeah, We're always on volume forty-two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I. I, I think I, I guess I always thought that I had an unconventional trajectory to publishing a book with a major publisher because like I never was good at winning contests. Like I feel like in fiction too, there's a lot of these contests and I just, that wasn't my world. And then like, I never published stories in big magazines and it was just like, okay. And then I I have a book with a major publisher, but it was like, that would that shouldn't really make sense. So I don't, I always say like, and if I'm giving advice, like every story is different. Like I can give you general advice, like have a website, like, you know, understand what the teaching academic world looks like, like sort of broad strokes, but I feel like everyone's publishing journey, so to speak, is so individualized. I don't know. It's fucking crazy. I've and, heard it's gotten even crazier since the pandemic, which we oh, can discuss, but yeah. Dude, I mean, do you, I mean, I don't know if you still fuck with like submittable or anything like that still at your Barely. I need right, to yeah. be doing that, but I'm. <laughs> well, I just mean with I'm an agent, you get a little bit of like, because I, I know I see this with young writers a lot, people that will post in our in our forums here for the podcast, or just like I'll, I'll scroll the timeline and see, see things. And it's like, I, you know, when people are like, oh, I got, re- I got rejected from Granta, I got rejected from The New Yorker, I got rejected from Harper. And it's like, yeah, because you're not getting in those with, I know they say, you know, submit to the slush pile and you should keep submitting to the slush pile if you don't, but like you're not getting into those really top tier ones without Mm -hmm. agent placement, even for poets guys. All right. Like if you don't have somebody fighting for you with everybody else trying to get their stuff on those pages, those coveted, you know, 80 pages that they print a month, you're just not, 
going, it's probably not going to happen for you. I think maybe that used to not be the case. I don't know. Maybe before our time yeah. where like you could just well, mail it in to <laughs> Louise Bogan and she would publish your poem if she liked it. Right. But like, it's just not, you just have to have somebody in your corner like that. I think everybody does frust like it's frustrating. I mean, we're all frustrated going. And even Leslie's saying there's the frustration doesn't end just because of that either. Like you're still fighting with everybody else now. So oh, now you have an agent. It's like, okay, well now you're just slogging with everybody else as an agent too, because everybody's going up, going up, going up, and it just gets well, harder and I harder. I imagine it's I just imagine it's so much harder in fiction just because it's something that is like I feel like you have to deal with like marketing in a way that I don't think I've ever heard of poets having to, because who are you really marketing to except other poets? I mean, I know you're not sure. supposed to say that, but I find it to be true. Um, yeah. I don't I mean, you have know to sort of cultivate a persona, right? On like, sorry to interrupt you at all. Oh, I yeah, mean, yeah. like on, um, like, I mean, I feel like there are plenty of uh, poet personas on Twitter, which is a marketing sort of tactic uh i guess it's to sell books i mean obviously it's right fiction i think it's genre non-specific but yeah i don't i'm not good at that stuff like i no one ever coached me at harper collins that i should be doing more social media i think i dated a photographer at one point when i was sold my book and he's like you got to get an instagram and that's when i got an instagram which was like very late like i don't have tiktok i'm not like I don't know. I, and Twitter, I find to be very difficult to engage with, um, like from an emotional perspective. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. I turn into a different person when I use Twitter yeah. and I become a rage become? machine. It's really bad. It does. That it's really you. bad. And Lee and I have texted, you know, just in private conversations back and forth about, you know, things like this, whatever trends, you know, what we're seeing stuff like that. How's it going? Blah, blah, blah. It is this weird new dynamic in not just the writing world, it's kind of every world now where like social media has taken over the world. And you, if you're not, you know, Lee Stein for listening to the writer, um, I've heard her on a few podcasts. Uh, she said stuff like this where she's like, yeah, you know, if you're not good at social media, I understand that. Like it's hard. It's combative. If you get above, you know, 1500 followers, you start getting death threats in your DMS and shit, no matter what you're saying, like no matter what you're doing on the platform, there's just mm -hmm. like reply guys and stuff. And she's like, but like, if you're not doing it, <laughs> you're not in the attention economy and everything mm -hmm. is the attention economy now Like you have mm -hmm. to. And it's, it sucks. It's kind of this DIY way of promoting your own shit and like cultivating brands. Yeah. And you can hear it in our voices. Listeners. It's like, Oh, cultivating brands. Like, Oh, I just want to do this. <laughs> but, well, but I will say like one of the number one places where I end up like, reading some new poem it's because somebody i know has posted a poem they either are reading or you know mm. it's a journal that just wanted to showcase that this poem in the new issue or whatever it is like that's where i end up reading them mm. um so it is i think really useful for that because i'm a lazy asshole and also i don't subscribe to any journals because why would i i don't i don't have that kind of money right no um, i think that is a, that is a benefit i was sort of arguing with my boyfriend who's a computer program about the utility of Twitter just today. Like there is the, it does connect you to information you wouldn't otherwise access. And that is yes. real and valid, but like you have to shut off all the other bullshit 
and ego and like and it's impossible that's so hard I'm just like fuck it I'm, yeah I'm not. no I'm I'm in the book <laughs> but, with you I could not and will not and, and refuse you, to <laughs> yeah, you you tweet out a link to your book be like oh check out my book or check out my new thing and then oh, somebody's like fuck crushing. you fuck you yeah. bitch like kind of like <laughs> and you just have to like tune and it, it feels out so gross yeah just like look at me i'm like look at me i try to do it it's like hustle i don't know how do you do it genuinely how do you do it genuinely though like that's the thing it's like how do you sell a book i don't know he's like uh (laughs) he really likes to do it so who's that Talon. um we can talk about his book taipei sometime (laughs) i had my other podcast about it (laughs) that might be another podcast i don't know what we're talking about listeners he also has a couple collections of poetry i'll get you acquainted with him instagram instagram (laughs) no um i haven't read it it's not it i i I read him at the same time that I read Ben Lerner's 1004, Andy, if that gives you any uh, perspective. Oh, okay. The same class. Yeah, same class. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't hear about any of that. I mean, yeah, it's... We have really positive feelings about Ben Lerner. <laughs> yeah. I listened to that episode. Yeah, oh, I'm good. really sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry if we were offensive. That was we, um, we, we talked for like four hours about this 80-page, <laughs> this like 80-page essay. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, like this, all right, <clears throat> going off of all this and this kind of like, all right, making it through like the, the state of the age of like the, the industry and how it's kind of crumbling. There's less money, there's less reward. Everybody's, and it's even more competitive than it's ever been. It just, you talked about getting the agent and like pitching the book and how long that took. Like what was after all that, like the galleys, the DIY marketing that a lot of these publishers make you do now. Cause again, like there's no money in this. So them giving you like a million bucks to market the book and actually get the sales or whatever for mm-hmm. the book that they're public. Like that's just not happening anymore because the, the industry just can't sustain that kind of spending on marketing when they're not selling copies. So it's tell listeners a little bit about what that was like the DIY kind of marketing, uh, the kind of tours you had to go on. And then I want to get to the kind of your tour being fucked with uh, the uh, COVID. Um, yeah. So this was, I, so I sold my book in December or my agent sold my book rather. I'll give her the credit in t- December of 2018. And so 2019 was all uh, editing and galleys and getting blurbs and all of that part of it. Because I was working with Harper Collins, it there was less of a DIY marketing aspect to it. Um, I believe my um, they, I, I was sort of assigned an internal publicist at Harper Collins, and I believe there was a stage where she asked me like, "Who you know?" And like the blurb, getting blurbs pro- process is similar. It's like, "Who do you know that you could reach out to for a blurb?" Blah blah blah. I think I didn't really realize that it was on you <laughs> to do that. Like I was like, "Oh, the editor is going to do it." Like they do some of it, and your agent will do some of it, but a lot of it is on you which is why now I very much value going to writing conferences, which is where I met a lot of like peers and instructors who did blurb my book. So I forever um, celebrate like Red Loaf and Tin House and these places because I, I made these connections there um, among other great benefits of those programs. But um, so like that was sort of DIY. Like I had to figure out like who's going to blurb my book and make that, have that awkward conversation. And, but then like, I, you know, a lot of it was kind of opaque what my internal publicist was doing. And um, 
this was like a million years ago, like pre-COVID. So I'm trying to think of the questions she asked you. Like she would send me links when things got published. I don't know. I don't even know. I think like a week before the New York Times review came out, she like told me it would happen. But that was like, I didn't know she was going for that. So like, I think it was just very much like not a conversation that was being had with me (laughs) intimately. Um, And I think Andy and I were texting about this recently. Like, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned from that process is like, you know, you don't get a very much money as like a literary fiction debut as an advance. But if I was to do another book, I'd probably like go out and hire a publicist outside of the publisher to do the work because I think they're more incentivized to work hard for you. The The big publishers just like have too many authors. And like, if you're just a debut, they don't have, you know, they're not going to allocate much time and resources. Like I'm grateful what they did, but like they just don't have the bandwidth. So, um, I don't know. It was, it was strange. And like, you feel like very small throughout that process of like, Oh, I don't know that many people like, you know, like we went to like a sort of humble MFA program and like, you know, it's not like I'm trying to think of a big famous person. We didn't have like that kind of world. So, um, yeah, I don't know. The, the top five know. programs are a different world than everything below it with MFA. So if you're going to one of the top five programs, if you're lucky enough to get in or, you know, talented enough in a lot of cases, like you get a little bit more out of going to those. Uh, and it is, you know, and we still we went to the top 20 program, but it's oh, well, they don't rank them anymore. Right. It's a secret. But uh you know, even so, like when you're outside of those those big, even the big three, really, they just have the resources and the, the faculty to to help you a little bit better along those lines. But yeah, man, I mean, <clears throat> well, I also, no. I also wonder what happens. Like, I mean, I have to imagine that somewhere there was like a writer who got published who had no other like major writer connections. I've right. And like, we're like, I'm supposed to reach out for blurbs. What do I do? I, I can see myself yeah. like being in a position where I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I don't have right, a lot of writer yeah. friends. I've heard stories from 20 years ago. Like, I've heard stories of like, because because like, and the the reward is so less. So if you're not going through, if you're self publishing and stuff, you know, self publishing used to be a laughing stock. It's not as much of a laughing stock as it used to be in terms of like what you get out of it. Because if you can just distribute it through Amazon or something, you cut out a lot of the middlemen. So you're like, you make more money if you actually sell, but then you don't have the marketing and the internal PR and stuff to get your book out there on shelves. You're entirely reliant on the DIY. But I've heard some story like Jared Kopech and some of these people that have flirted with the self-publishing. Like he'd done some stuff with major presses and then he'd done, basically got fed up with it and just self-published that book, I Hate the Internet, a couple years ago. And he said like what he did was, yeah, he said the most expensive part was paying like 20 grand, like borrowing money to like start this press to like, he said all the paperwork, all that, the legal stuff costs like five grand. He's like, but the 20 grand (laughs) went to publicist. He's like, you just have, if you Uh don't hire a publicist, you will not sell books. I don't care what it is. If you're like a hundred thousand followers on social media, you know, like you just need to have a publicist who's pushing that book, pushing it into like, yeah, the New York Times sections, the Wall Street, the big papers, Wall Street Journal and stuff, where they review books every week, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And like that, you know, some of the smaller presses. So something like Grey Wolf, why is Grey Wolf as a smaller press so successful? Well, they just have a, they have a one, they have good editors there that pick good stuff, but two, mm-hmm. they have a really good publicist team 
that puts their stuff out there. So this small press gets nominated for all the big awards and stuff, just like the large right. presses do, because they mm -hmm. pay that money for a good public team, like a publicist team to do all that. And mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's frustrating. I mean, there. I wish we had good answers. I, I mean, it's just slogging away at it. I don't know. But some yeah, people do I it. Mean, yeah, go on. Sorry. No, I was just thinking like, I think a lot of these lessons were just things that you learn doing it. And I, I wish like I had a coach to tell me like <laughs> shell out for the publicist, like get a website, like these things that like weren't part of the sort of like romantic dreamy world of writing. Like, Oh, the, the ideal MFA where you have like a mentor who is like deeply invested in your work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's really, yeah. that's a cool idea. But also, like, I feel like in the MFA, you're, like, taught to sort of avoid or shun thinking about the marketing and the business side of writing. Like, right. and I don't oh. quite understand that. Yeah, we didn't have any fucking business. There was a couple, like, the business classes, Lee and I have texted about this. Like, yeah, it would you would think some programs would, would design some type of how to navigate, at least give you some type of advice or structure to start navigating this complex system that's constantly changing and i mean right now it's literally crumbling the industry is crumbling like they're not making money <laughs> like they're there's a losing money business how do you navigate that and there was some we did have to take a class like about professional prof endeavors yeah professional endeavors where and that was helpful in terms of how to apply to academic positions, how, what's expected of you in academic positions. And, 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 you know, it sounds silly, a lot of stuff, but most people, like, you don't have a fucking clue unless you've started either throwing yourself into it, like Lee said, like literally learning as you go, or, yeah, you had somebody who's been experienced in it and actually give you some advice, and you either have to seek that out yourself by, like, going to your, like, mentor's office, or, in our case, there was a class that was set up for that. Although, you know, people had issues with it or what i mean everybody just likes to complain about that kind of shit but yeah so the book launch yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah book launch and the tour tell us about it um so i my pub date was february 18th 2020 let's go back in time to that that moment i forgot what day the world shut down but it was maybe three weeks after that so i, I went march, to new york march 13th i think like yeah march it was 15th. during it, yeah it was toward the end of my spring semester i remember yeah uh, that sounds right to me um i was in new york for my launch and it was great um very fun lovely all the things and then i i was teaching at clemson at the time and so i did an event at um a local bookstore and press. And then I went to Charleston, South Carolina and did another event. It was also very nice. And then I had all these other events planned, which I'll say I set up. No one else set that up for me. You set it up all yourself? I think so. And I didn't oh, get any wow. money. Right, yeah, I didn't yeah, get yeah. any money. Yeah, um, it's a common theme, listeners. No money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure no one helped me. I did those three events and then everything shut down. And so I think I had like maybe four more or something. It was a small like regional tour. They all kind of, they all got canceled or like they went online. There were a couple of readings I did online, which I could tell you in like March, April, May was not as sort of 
honed as it is now the online reading thing yeah. and even then it's like still kind of sad I think for yeah. me personally so yeah it was weird uh I think like even thinking about it a year later I was like did that even happen like publishing uh-huh. a book like you know because it's like Dave it's one thing to be a well-known author and you're publishing a book during the pandemic people still like know who you are and they have nothing to do so they're gonna buy your book but like the way that people find debuts is they're browsing a bookstore and they see it on a, sh- a shelf or a table and they pick it up and they're like, okay. And so I like didn't have that experience. So it was, I don't know. I don't even, I don't feel bitter about it. I mean, why would you feel bitter about it? Right. Some, but it's just like a strange, like it fell into the abyss of everything, you know? Yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of surreal. Sounds like, yeah. I can't imagine. I like. I can't imagine. Yeah. And then you have all that like excitement and hype, and then you're like running off that momentum, like it's there, and then that wall comes down. And like you said, you even had to set up a lot of the events yourself. Like it's just kind of this. Very DIY. Yeah. I don't. (laughs) I guess it's just because nobody cares about books. Like there's just like there's like this (laughs) small little niche of people that care about books. I don't know, but yeah, I can't imagine how awful that was in terms of having to do online reading. I mean, we go to, we've been to readings. Online we talk readings. about readings, readings in person are, are sometimes hard to get through. And then yeah. like, if you you take that to the point where you can wander around your house and stuff while somebody's reading from their book, it's, just, yeah. I, I can't imagine how, yeah, like how, not awful, like you said, or bitter, but just like kind of how like, what the fuck's going on? Like kind of how the fuck <laughs> is this? Like, is this a book I mean, launch? Like, <laughs> like is this? Yeah, like... exactly. Did, did that happen? I mean, there's an interesting. My friend, um, who I met through a different uh, writing residency, she had a book come out, and so she sort of mentored me a little bit through the process. But she told me about this Facebook group called like. 2020 debuts and there's one for every single year i feel like it's mostly fiction maybe but it's sort of like a support group on facebook for people that are going through the process they ask questions it's actually really great it still exists like um and people will post like here's my second book i sold whatever but it you really like you saw people who are having their books come out in like may 2020 or like october 2020 and you're like they got to do nothing like they didn't have yeah. a debut like they didn't have a launch they i mean i so I felt lucky that I even had a couple ex- events, but right. it's, yeah, I don't know. It was weird. <laughs> yeah, God, that has to be. Yeah. I think it sort of, again, placed the emphasis on like, all right, publishing is cool, but ultimately like you're going to be in your house writing and that's really it. That's a, that's really what it's about. Yeah. Getting it, getting a $2,500 check to uh, spend like two years working on a novel. <laughs> like to spend like two years slaving over yeah. a novel. Like here's yeah. $2,500 and you're going to do all this yourself. Thanks. We're going to take, we're going to take I, 45%. Oh my God. I was just talking to my boyfriend about that. Like who was talking about like how some programmers will like spend a weekend building an app and make it sell it for like 20 grand. And I was like, well, I worked like five years on a book and I maybe made that much, maybe less. So I was like, no big deal. I'm not bitter about it. <laughs> Yeah, it's we've talked about this on the podcast. Listeners know, like, if you're writing literary, like, it's a rough road. Like, you, you know, we're the George Saunders of the world. Is that even a path people could take anymore? Like, to get to like a George Saunders level or something? Like, I don't know if that exists. <laughs> like, if that like a path for you have to basically forge your own path. Like, I'm sure you could. Well, get yeah, there, and I, I but think a lot no of it. There's no roadmap. Like, there's no uh, roadmap well, anymore. 
And so much of it is about like stylistic preferences too, right? I mean, you know, I, I don't know what your, I will, you know, maybe we'll get into this next. I don't know what your particular literary influences are. Lee. Yeah, we should um, actually. Yeah. What are your, yeah, your main writing influences, the people you admire, styles, stories, like the things that, you know, shaped Lee Madelone, like the style, your literary style. and Sure. Um yeah, I, I, I guess I've always been drawn to lyrical writing or writing that really had an emphasis on sort of like the poetry of a sentence. Um, I always teach this essay by Gary Lutz um, on uh, sort of like when I'm teaching creative writing or something in fiction, it's, it's really about making the words in a sentence like sort of sing to one another and bounce off each other. And like, that's the work that I'm drawn to. And so I was always, I, I studied with a lot of poets in undergrad and so and, and poetry was heralded at UVA unlike I maybe in other places. So I think it was always a part of my life. And um, like weird poets too are esoteric or poets are doing weird hard stuff like Ann Carson or something that's like difficult. I don't know. I, I liked that stuff when I was younger. And um, Maggie Nelson, of course, I like Hilton Owls is probably one of my favorite writers, like writers that try and like do weird things and sometimes fuck up and like aren't afraid to take risks and it's not always the cleanest thing and like writers that are moving between genres and um like uh scott mcclanahan is one of my favorite living writers like people that are very much like adopting a voice and persona in their work and like aren't afraid to play with style a little bit so i don't know it's a range like i know it's not cool i like david foster wallace i love david foster wallace i've always loved david foster wallace oh, yeah. um, i want to talk about dfw with you yeah <laughs> we can talk um yeah we, andy and i have gotten into some fights about dfw well really? he's very contentious online too if you scroll the timeline there's a lot of lovers a lot of haters yeah i know there's a lot i don't where are we falling in the culture is it is everyone hate him still or are we, is it moved moved back to some I don't think appreciation we so i don't know well, because he's de- well, since he's dead, and se- like since I think we like him now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think there's always the set. Like, there's always that divide. He's a big dividing line in. in well, literature. I think it was uh-huh. a biopic, and now we like him. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, dude. Got it. They did the movie. I think it was. Right. Jason what, did they do like Jason? With, uh, Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, it was I saw Siegel. it. It was. It was. It was, it was, it was the uh, the fine. Muppets guy. It was the um, forgetting Sarah Marshall guy played him. Jason Sudeikis. Siegel. Seagull, Jason Siegel. Yes, Siegel. Uh, Siegel is, the, is guy, the guy man. that got cucked by Harry Styles. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, DFW. Mm-hmm. He's 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 a big. I mean, literally, if you guys, if I mean, listeners will know this. If you hang out in any of the social media circles, online in the literary world, kind of, we've already said a little bit insufferable, depending on your personality. But like, he trends. He's dead. He's been dead like twenty years now, and like. It, you know, he trends like every couple months he'll trend and there's this huge blow up and there's like, Oh, there's a bunch of people that say, Oh, that he's a genius. One of the greatest American writers. There. And then there's people that he's a misogynist, you know, he's, uh, uh, you know, Mary Carr's telling stories or whatever about how he was like rude or, uh, or, you know, he was a fucking drug addict too. People forget that. So, I mean, I'm sure he had mood swings and all that kind of shit, but yeah, I mean, 
I, it's hard to think of a, a kind of a contemporary or from the contemporary period writer who divides people more in DFW. And I, mm. I like the, one of the things that, like I said, Lee and I hit it off kind of right away because unafraid. She would just say, be like, yeah, I like DFW. And then, the, yeah, deal with that, bitch. Yeah, like deal yeah, with it. Also what are you going to say? One in the yeah. program who read Infinite Jest. Yeah, yeah <laughs> one of the, no, there were a few that like liked it. They read uh, it. Yeah, I yeah, yeah, the pretend to read stuff, but the pretend to read. Yeah. I know. Yeah, it's like yeah. this. I've never seen. I mean, writers be that kind of loved and hated at the same time. I guess that mm -hmm. means you're successful. I guess that means that like you're good if you have right. that many haters and lovers, but. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just curious. I always wanted to get your thoughts on DFW and how he's how he's viewed, you know, in the culture largely, the literary world, well, uh, how you personally feel. Yeah. I mean, yeah, anything. Go for it. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I think when I started reading him, he was okay in the culture and people still liked him when I was 20 worshipped. and that worshipped. I think yeah. we were in the worship stage and there was that yeah. cliche of like every guy you would date would bring up DFW or something. I never had that date. Uh, but yeah, that, that was the era in which I started reading his work. Um, I believe he actually right before he died, he got a fellowship at UVA and was going to go, but didn't go obviously. So I think there was part of that lore there. Um, cause he famously hung himself listeners that don't know, uh, he printed uh, out his last novel, put it on the toilet that. next to him and then hung himself. So that's the, and I having a tragedy like that, the end of your life kind of boosts kind of boosts your literary reputation i mean in the, in the 20 there's yeah. we romanticize suicide we romanticize alcoholism in this field a lot and i think that does yeah. I, I mean he wasn't stupid he i don't i mean i don't think that's why he killed himself but i mean i don't think he was completely ignorant to the fact that like you do build your legacy if you're a big star and there's this tragedy at the end of their life or whatever like i said i don't think he's i'm not saying he planned that like of course not like <laughs> but uh yeah sorry yeah. i interrupted you no, 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 you're fine. Um, I'm just trying to think of what story I first read. I think I read Good Old Neon, that story and that collection. I don't know who even put me onto it, but I just, I think I appreciated again, like the ambition of it. Like, even if it wasn't always like hitting, it was like just something, I had never experienced anything like that as a young person or a young writer, someone who was trying to push themselves in that maximalist way. And it wasn't even a way I identified like, I am much more of a minimalist. I can't write long like that. So it wasn't like, oh, I commiserate or empathize from an artistic perspective. But it was just like, wow, this person is really taking chances and like being messy. And sometimes his work kind of sucks, I think. Like right. sometimes it's just brilliant. And um, like, and I think it's the, there's sort of a variety of his work. You know, you have this sort of like very intellectual and heady stories um, and novels, but then you have a story like Incantations of Burned Children, which I think was published in Esquire, and it's a piece of flash fiction. It might be one paragraph that runs for three pages, and it's like lyrical and dense and fast and just one of the saddest things I've ever read. And like every time I read it, I cry. And like that's really what I want when I read. I want to like cry or like feel something. Um, and that story does that for me. Um, and so I, yeah, I just appreciate his range and like. I don't know. There are just not many people like that. Well, I mean, it's creatives like that. I mean, and he's smart, you know? I mean, right. like, whether you like him or you hate him, I think, at least for me, like, that was one of the things that, you know, you mentioned this really early on, like, you were reading like you had something to prove when you were <laughs> younger, right? And 
I think a lot of young writers, you know, even at least like into their 20s, 30s feel that way. I still feel that way. Uh, it's what we talk about on this podcast. It's why we like we have it. You know, we're like ashamed of all the things we haven't read. And mm. um, I think with DFW, the thing was like everyone understood how smart he was. He was he wouldn't have been such a massive phenomenon had he not been so brilliant, I think. And so like whether or not you like him or not. And it was, um, it was high. It was like that thing. It was like, I have to have read David Foster Wallace or how, like, or what am I trying to do? Like, like I have failed as a writer. If I have not at least done that. He had that like <laughs> high minded aspect, like you guys were saying, but there was also, there's like a little level of grunginess to him. And I get, okay. Like the nineties and that, like he wore the flannel and the headband, <laughs> the bandanas and shit. <laughs> the bandana. I just said, I know he's, he was going bald. I understand that and all that kind of stuff. That's a painful thing, dude. We talked about this <laughs> on, our, on our own episode listeners where we get into hair plugs. Uh, I don't know how we got it. was like, you know. He had this grunginess on top of this high-minded literary stuff that you, you know, he's writing articles for the New Yorker and then he's writing about doing heroin. Like he's, you know, like he's just writing about these things. Like I know a lot of guys fall because the stuff he writes about addiction, the way he would write about sex, you know, from the male perspective and things like that. Like it's, and, and then also stylistically, nobody else is DFW, right? Like he is that guy. And then he had so many, like you said, the range, he was doing journalism. He was doing the first thing I read by him was the Sophie Armin, this dumb nonfiction class. And, and this is community college. Read, and I remember yeah, I had a real hard time with that teacher. Uh, the teacher hated me. <laughs> I, I was, hated that teacher yeah, too. Cause I, I made was that very clear. Always that guy that was, well, hold on. Like, <laughs> you know, kind of in the class, but I read uh yeah, supposedly fun thing. I'll never do again. That collection. Uh, and it is so unique. Like nobody else can do that. Like people copy it. They can try to copy it. They can, you know, be inspired by it. But like literally like DFW is so uniquely DFW that it's just, you know, and like Lee said, it's so rare. Like that's like, there are thousands of books published every year. Like we don't read most of them. Right. But like when you read his, like that is an experience like you know and we talk about this all the time listeners know like the visceral reaction lee was described like being moved to tears being moved to laughter being moved to any of these deep like resonance this visceral resonance inside you as you read like that's your judgment marker you know like and he is able to get that out of so many people in the positive and the negative kind of thing that like yeah what more could you ask for from like a literary mm -hmm. icon I mean, I wonder too, like, could even, could that even be achieved now with the literary landscape and the kind of the crumbling of the industry? Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Well, it was, he was like the sort of last iconic figure before that could just put out work and you would read his work and judge the work on the merits of the work. And now it's like, you have an icon and it's, you're like looking at their Twitter and their Instagram and all this other stuff you put out. And it's like, some the the work even becomes tertiary or something or even less important than that you know and i don't know it's i wish i was more of an adult a cognizant being during that period where you could still just like write a book and like that was it or something you know it seems strange that that was even a time yeah i i mean we we talk about that a lot i mean the, the changing not just the landscape and the business side of it the industry but like the cultural significance of what DFW was doing, yeah, put out a book and people would judge it on the literary merits. There wasn't this like personality. There wasn't like, um, 
Yeah, mostly it's politics now. I mean, it's mostly it's like you put your politics out there on your social media thing and then you're judged according to that and not necessarily your body of work or the work itself on the page and all that. And, you know, and that puts writers in a weird position. And now so now like now when you're tweeting out or, you know, something to promote your work, not only are you just trying to promote your work, people are taking that as if you're making like political statements that you hold deeply that like, that you like these deep political beliefs or something. It's like, nah, like that's not how this ever worked until like five mm. years ago, dude. Like this is well, a yeah, new and fucking I think thing. People, I saw I heard a lot of this when I was in the MFA, too. And maybe this is I would imagine this is maybe more of an MFA thing um, where you would have someone write a character that was maybe not a good person and it was taken as the stand in for the writer's actual uh, yeah, uh, beliefs. Yeah, and, like, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. Like, that's a, know, that's so... a scandal every week, dude. That's a scandal every that's... week on literary Twitter. Like, yeah, we all know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like that. So literally. you know, you write a character who is not a good person. God forbid you that you know. Like, I mean, and I'm not even talking like anti-heroes. <laughs> like, I'm talking yeah. about like the villain of the story. Yeah. Um, or maybe it was a main character who was supposed to change over time, or whatever it was. I didn't take the fiction <laughs> workshop, so I just you know heard all the cool, yeah. cool gossip. Um, and I had one friend who was like was, I think, uh, pretty routinely by a couple of people, it was suggested that maybe he was uh, a, a bit racist. Um, oh, no. because, he, because he wrote characters that were racist. Not all of them, but like on occasion, there had to be a character who was racist because he also perceived himself as like a Southern writer. Um, uh -huh. uh, Flannery O'Connor style. And I found that interesting. Yeah. Like I, I thought, you know, it, at maybe like at the graduate level like we would have an understanding that like and you know I'm sure that is there too like I'm sure that there are those situations where like you have students that are you know writing work that are clearly intended like I, I to be some kind of stand-in for their beliefs but I imagine that that is a little bit more apparent um it's something I see with DFW criticism too like the haters love to harp on him for stuff other than the writing other than yeah. the work that he left behind but I don't know. Which, not to yeah, throw I this mean, hot potato I, I at you, Lee. Just I like, think oh, that's going to happen. Yeah, throw me the hot yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, what do you yeah, think that about that? Just, <laughs> just a curiosity about it. Um, let's talk about racism. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Are you racist? Already... Or how do you feel yeah. about racism? Yeah. Do you like the Nazis? <laughs> <laughs> Are you a fan of Kanye? Um... Yeah, what was the Kanye question? <laughs> do you like Hitler? Yeah. <laughs> Get a good soundbite. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. sorry, we don't mean to ruin your career in this interview. Yeah, here with no, it like, we, we can cut out anything. <laughs> yeah, we can cut and out anything. Go for that. it. It's okay. For I, it. My career is already over. I started the last one with three Hitlers just to get it out of my system. Um, <laughs> Sophie was just like, yeah. We do have the protection, yeah. though, so we have the Jewish <laughs> on our side. For, so you can get away the with Jewish. it. Yes. The Jewish. The Jewish. That's, in fact, what I go by. I wanted, yeah, I wanted, I'm Sophie the Jewish woman. I wanted to make sure yeah. I was... they call me. I wanted to make sure I was othering it as much as I could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I am Jew. Um, <laughs> as, as Kanye would tell us. Yeah, sorry. Uh -huh. I didn't mean to throw all that at you, Lee, but uh, yeah. No, do you, do you I'm here for it. <laughs> I'm here for it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, 
I, I feel like this is just to talk about current literature a little bit. I don't know. I, I have a hard time locating things that move me in the same way that are published now because of the, there is so much noise. And I don't, I don't find myself sort of like wanting to read older work or something to stay out of it. But then I'm like, do I really, I really want to connect to the current conversation, but I have a hard time really like accessing what makes me feel that way. <laughs> I don't know if that's no, that a makes good way perfect of saying that to me. You're, I feel like alone, we talk yeah. about that all yeah. the time. Um, there's like, I have that urge all the time to mm. stick to, I mean, Oh, right after I left the program, I think, that was when, like, I bought a ton. Uh, this is when we were first talking about the podcast. Like, I bought all of this Edith Wharton. <laughs> I was like, this is nice. all I'm reading. This is all I'm reading for, like, the next year. And that's really uh -huh. most of what I read for the next year. And it uh -huh. was, like, all I really craved was, you know, and a lot of it was, I guess, fiction. Maybe I was just, like, I need a break from poetry for a minute. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, I, I feel the same way. I feel overwhelmed by how much there is in um, contemporary literature and not just how much, but like um, I find myself struggling to connect with it the same way. And every once in a while, you know, I mean, this is true of most books of poetry. It's sure. a rare uh, thing where I find a book of poetry that I'm like through and through at like there is not a poem in here that I could say is like meh. You know, um, and it's rare that I find something that floors me and makes me feel the way, you know, you feel reading um, Emily Dickinson. I mean, there are a handful of contemporary writers that do that for me. One of them is like Alison Bennis White is the first person that came to mind. Um, but yeah, I, it's so much noise and you honestly, it's hard to know. I think it's hard to know what the genuine recommendations are because again, I think this is just a fact about the literary world is that you're leaning on your friends to promote you. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, it's really rare. I think that you find a review that is openly critical or as critical of a book as it is praising Mm -hmm. above mm -hmm. even five years ago dude like if you if you pick up even a new yorker like from 2015 2014 like there are more critical in the reviews than they are now and then not all the time and, not all the time but you know and i don't mean like you know we should be writing reviews that are like this book is bad don't buy it you know <laughs> yeah i don't think that's what we're saying either i'm not saying we should all be doing a holiday and putting out that particular review of Ben Lerner's The Hatred of Poetry, though I don't suppose we did it much more justice. Um, <laughs> but I do think that there's something to be said for being able to like look at poetry or at any literature. Like It's hard to know, I think, like um, who's reviewing because this right. is a book that they believe is like the you know you need to read this book it's really wonderful or this is my friend and i want to sell their book i'm not saying that's a bad thing but it it feels like there's so much noise it's so hard um i mean you can rely on like the big contest winners 
It's like for poetry. Yeah, but I don't always like. I don't always find a home there either. So what it is is like you know, and we we're not blaming anybody, listeners either. Like it's like you know, how do you blame people for a cultural milieu that's kind of evolved over a decade or whatever to make it what it is? I mean, is it a combination of things, like a combination of the industry kind of not being what it was, not making as much money as it was because the sales are down. So now the editors are worse. You know, now like the people Mm -hmm. inside the publishing house are worse. And maybe are they just publishing stuff that isn't as good, isn't as resonant as some would say? Like, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think you brought up a great point because everybody's feeling that. I think most literature lovers are feeling something similar right now. At least like this last like five, six years. I don't know what it is. Like it just... Maybe it's this thing where we're talking about, like risk, the ability to try something or or try something and maybe it sucks or it fails, like it doesn't quite work. I don't know. I mean, less chance of risk because the industry is not as prone to accepting and absorbing that financial risk to publish an experimental book by somebody like a DFW or um, I don't know. I mean, a combination of that. And then, of course, the kind of group social media dynamics that we've been kind of talking about this whole time with like, it's just part of the industry now is this this mm-hmm. dynamics of everybody gets to tell you what they think right away in real time kind of thing and if a bunch of people are piling on well that can affect the publication we've seen publications pulled we've seen uh you know people losing their contracts whatever it is because one person you know makes a comment and I, you don't you don't have the text yet the book isn't fucking out yet but somebody knows right. or made right. a claim and then it spreads like wildfire and the publisher doesn't stand behind the author they get scared when in reality it would actually boost sales probably if they let's just well stood this behind is something that's a phenomenon also i think with like um often bigger names too right like people who are doing pretty big sales Mm -hmm. um i don't know i mean do you see that like and this is you know for both of you like i don't know if i I see this and maybe it's just because i'm not reading enough um but i don't know if i hear that kind of controversy the same way with um lesser known or debut authors i feel like it can um i'm so out of the conversation recently but i feel like what was the book? It was like two years ago that it was a white woman who wrote that book about Mexico. And that American was her debut, Dirt. I think. American, American Dirt. Dirt. Janine Cummins. Yeah. I remember it well. Yeah. Oh, yes. wow. Okay. But I got and a lot of for a debut, unlike most right. debuts. So, yeah. I would I mean, imagine that helped their sales. Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. And that's an example um, where they did stand by her. The publisher didn't pull the book because they put, so I think, she, I think part of, you know, we'll get to this, the jealousy, the professional jealousy, I think is a big part of this too, where she got a big deal. She got a seven figure deal where they sold the book rights and the movie rights at the same time because she was writing a pop kind of thriller page Turner book. Mm-hmm. And it was set in this, yeah, like uh, Mexico fleeing the cartel to America or whatever is the overall plot. I didn't read the book, but I remember the scandal. It was insane. And there's like, you know, they stood by her, but I remember like she was forced to kind of go through these. I remember listening to an NPR interview where it was her and four other people all against her. Even the, even the moderator, like the NPR journalist was all not on her side. And she basically just had to sit there and be lambasted, called a racist. Nobody saying that Mm -hmm. like, you know, any of this. And she just kind of had to take it. And I guess it did go Mm -hmm. away eventually. And she's publishing more books now, but it's like, 
Yeah, that's ne that never used to happen. <laughs> that never, well, this yeah. is where you see thing. the critical like, review. This is yeah. where you see a critical. Well, I mean, would we call it critical? We would call it. Um, I, I guess it depends on how we're using the word. Um, this is where I right. guess we would see like a negative review, mm -hmm. not necessarily a review that is looking at it with a particularly critical eye. There were a lot of um, negative reviews, and a lot of them. Yeah. There's there's great. There's few journalists that did some work on this that you people listeners can look it up. Like a lot of the reviews, people that wrote them did not read the book. They were saying things were in the book that were not there. Like it, and it's it was that bad. Right. It was right. that bad, and nobody was coming to her defense, even because if they did they were you know you were done you could lose everything if you did kind of yeah but also it's a great example of there being such a chasm between like literary people and lay people's opinions like normal readers don't give a fuck about this stuff you know like they were still <laughs> buying they were buying and loving the book and then like this small they want to be entertained yeah and like what you know and and so it's yeah i don't know people just like to scream about things sometimes. I remember that because it was a huge deal in the literary world and that's who was mostly getting upset about it which is why they were doing all these NPR segments and stuff and then it was like mm -hmm. or my mother like a couple months after the hoopla settled down she was like oh I'm just reading this great book it was on Oprah's book club you know and my mother's that type of reader and she's like oh yeah American Dirt and I was like oh yeah like yeah, <laughs> yeah. well it's like the J.D. Vance book too uh, Hillbilly Elegy like right. you know did you I read that one and I was like all right but it was huge that book right. was huge but like oh, literary people it. hated it oh they everyone was teaching that book at uh, the school i went to the mfa and i think really yeah well, it was in kentucky. not okay oh yeah oh no i was in kentucky so okay so the appalachian kind of <laughs> right claim to fame but yeah, I yeah. Mean, it's a lot of this jealousy too. You saw it with that too. So I'm sure Vance got a big book deal on that because he was went to Stanford, probably knew people. He's not a writer, right? He wrote this fucking memoir. People were pissed that this guy, this non-writer, got an advance and then got sales. So then got checks after the, the initial contract, which is rare, right? So everybody gets upset about that. I think you saw this. Who was that writer that wrote uh, Sweet Bitter? Oh, I'm talking um, about? Yeah, I, I do. Anyway, I she blew up. She blew up with that first book or whatever. And when you read a lot of the reviews, they were so focused. She got a nice big six-figure advance, which is incredibly rare. Top 1% of 1% in the industry, right? Especially because she's doing like a literary kind of work. Mm -hmm. Like people were obsessed with the fact that she got a bigger advance than everybody else in the field and she needed to pay for it, right? Or she didn't deserve it or she needed to be taken down a notch or I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just human bitterness, jealousy. Like we can't do anything about yeah. those things, but. Yeah. But if you're just like engaged in that conversation, if you're on Twitter all the time and like just reading all this stuff, it's like, it's only going to stoke the fire and make you more bitter and angry. And what does that have to do with writing oh, what at all? Do but make you better. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I use social media, but it's like at a certain point, it's like, what, what benefit is it to you to be so angry about things you can't control? I don't know. Especially about books. Like this is a fictional fucking thing. <laughs> yeah. Like it's made up. It sits on the shelf. And then, then now we have to pretend that it's like some catastrophic, like world ending thing. Somebody published a book. Like, and it's well, it's like, entirely oh. possible, Andy, that it hurts someone's <laughs> feelings. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's like, 
this is a good segue. I think we move into like the corporate side of writing where we've talked about it already. We talked about the publishing industry, but this kind of other side of like, even I was, universities are part of the kind of corporate side of writing. Like there's not a lot of money to be made in poetry, especially I've talked about this where it's poetry was usurped through by the academy because it was no longer like you couldn't make money but you could make money in the academy and that like all the poets got jobs in the academy and published on university presses and things like that and now something else is happening where social media is big business and it's taking over poetry first I say fiction and not quite in the same way although it is happening because fiction still think- has profitability so fiction can still be like a business outside of that world mm-hmm. even though that's fading too but like we've taught the AWP, the Academy, um, these corporate kind of conferences, like the big endowments I, that run magazines. I have questions. I have questions about <laughs> AWP. I have never <laughs> been to AWP. I rejected the opportunity to go to AWP on multiple occasions. I, What is it about AWP that has my uh, the peers of my cohort still getting so hype? so hype on the email chain um i mean andy have you been yeah 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 i feel like which one did you go to uh the first one i went to was portland uh when we were still getting yeah, funding we for our mfa and you uh-huh. were in a weird position for that and that's why i wanted to talk to you about this because you've been in a, a different position where i was just an attendee you know like going there like you know, you know mm-hmm. fifty thousand people that go there but you know there's like a thousand twenty five hundred people that are on the panels that are the writers that are trying to sell a book and I know ah, you've do been we there. have the rare panelist well i mean i, I know lee's panel. yeah like lee's yeah. been there as a student where like you don't have anything you're trying to sell and then she's been there as somebody that has to be on the panel and have a book that mm-hmm. they're trying to sell with a major press you know so you have to mm-hmm. sit at the table you have to do the the signed shit and i just yeah well that was yeah Portland I was on a panel this was before my book came out and I didn't have a table because I didn't have the book out so I was on a panel I forgot what the reasoning was I met one of my fellow panelists the person who put the panel together was someone I met at another writing conference and he invited me to be on it and I was like sure and it's one of those things that you do because it is a marketing thing but also like I mean you want to support your writers who are supporting you so whatever it's a thing there's nothing wrong with the panels i think it's fun if you're doing it as far as a person that's just going like i (laughs) it's fun if you're doing it if you're just going to watch the panel though i maybe think it (laughs) i'm trying to state this in like a coherent fashion i mean i i've been to san antonio i think um and that's it maybe just two um and i oh no what was the one in Florida? Uh, Tampa? Tampa was right before the pandemic, I think. Tampa was the one right before. Okay. The yes, Tampa. So maybe I went to Tampa and Portland. And my justification for going was like, all of my friends are going to be in one place. Like all these writers I met at conferences and grad school and whatever, they're going to be here. And how it's like a wedding, you know, like how often do you get to have everybody in one place? So like, that's why I went in general. And I ended up always having a great time, like, just as a social thing. And especially if your school's paying for it, like it's not going to hurt you to go and like go to a few readings and go get some like cheap books or whatever it is. So like, I I won't hate, I hate on AWP, but like now as someone who's outside of academia for the most part, it feels sort of very insular to me. Like, and um, it's definitely aimed at people who teach and work in academia or attend MFA programs or graduate programs. It's not, 
I don't think aimed at people who have like a corporate job. Um, and I mean, now that I do have a somewhat corporate job, a lot of these writing residencies that are like two weeks or like a month or two months or fellowships, it's like, you can't do that if you have a normal job or a family or a dog. It's like, these are only for people who have three months off in the summer or in right. December. And so it's like an interesting shift um, in my sort of framing of it all. But yeah, I, I would feel weird going to AWP now. I was texting with some friends that I've been with before. I was like, are you going to go? And like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm like, eh, I don't think I fit in anymore or something. I don't know. I don't know. I guess what makes me curious about it as someone who has never attended and, you know, obviously, you know, I had the opportunity to generally like, you know, crowded spaces are not my thing to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really think I'd enjoy it, but I was like looking for reasons why I should go beyond being told that I should go. Uh, for the experience and I was sort of given this impression like I'll meet people and you know you'll go to all these readings and like you'll learn things and but you'll really it's like you'll meet people you'll rub elbows right Mm -hmm. like that's sort of what people would yeah and that always seemed to me like okay sure maybe you will but how many people are going to be approaching said person with uh some great hope of becoming friends or rubbing elbows or getting published. And maybe I'm being overly um, pessimistic about it. Maybe it's just because like, I I didn't think that as someone who had no ambitions of writing fiction or really nonfiction was purely a poet. I didn't see uh, that experience as being like the most useful to me um, yeah I mean, but, I so think, I'm, I'm just curious I think that I mean I had friends who would go to AWP because they had a meeting scheduled with an agent that they had had some contact with or they had a book out and they needed to meet someone they needed to get a blurb from or there was a more sort of like um, there was a business business meeting. side of it yes exactly and that that has definitely worked I, I'm not against that in any way but I think for me like it was really about like building a community of writers that are your peers, not necessarily people that are your equals. Like to me, my writing peers are very valuable to me, not just like, so I can share work, but also just to commiserate and like talk about this shit with sometimes. And like, um, there's very few people ultimately that understand like what it's like to like live in like Charles for three years or like be in workshop and like, you know, or be pitching a book, like, and it's nice to have people to support you through that. And so like, I think these things like conferences and AWP are good for just like reconnecting with your people sometimes. But like the panels and the book fair, like meeting agents, to me, that wasn't why I went. And that wasn't really what helped me or made me feel good about AWP. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's what it is. It's just, it's really like kind of a social event, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have totally. the friends that are there, either you're right. with a group of your like fellow MFAs and you're going and they are in fact your friends, <laughs> which mm-hmm. like, yes. um, and either that or it's like the reunion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the group of writers that are, this is the time of year that they see each other. Right. And right. it's always like, I always viewed it, it, it is like a showcase of, 
kind of the big names. So it's like you go there and you could rub elbows. Like you walk through the book fair and you'll see some big names just walking around there, you know, chatting, people going up to them and stuff like that. So there's that benefit. But yeah, I mean, it can, you know, everyone, it, the reason I'm always fascinated about writers' opinions on it is because <laughs> AWP is this one conference where like when it comes around, when it starts coming around and you're getting the emails and everybody yeah. starts saying, oh, I hate it. Oh, don't you hate being around all these people? Oh my God, it's so awful. And then they go there and they talk about how great it is. <laughs> like, it's just kind of this like yeah, right, weird. Right. People like this hate on it. Well, it's like this weird relationship with writers where it's like this is this kind of big, massive thing that just kind of maybe it was – been too big now or something like it's too big almost i don't know but like mm. there's just this big massive thing that kind of orbits around all the writing programs and then aspiring writers and teachers and for some reason the large percentage of people dread going to it but then it's also like you said there's benefits to going if you want to go there and you want to actually hustle and do some stuff like you could but that takes a lot of gumption, right? That takes a lot of chutzpah, as they say, right? Like to just start doing that. Mm -hmm. Not everybody can do that kind of thing, but. <clears throat> I mean, I think the thing that would be the coolest to me about going would just be to like explore all the books, you know? Like I think that would be just the, you know, the people watching generally. But I am growing, I don't know, your description has me increasingly curious. I, mean, I feel I think like if, if it rolls around, yeah. if it rolls around on the East Coast, maybe I would have to check it out. Yeah, it doesn't. I think every writer, especially if you've been to an MFA and like know a person or two, should go if it's accessible. Like if someone's paying for it or it's down the street, like you don't have to go to any of the events or pay for anything. You can just like kind of exist there and see it. Like it's not gonna hurt. And I don't know. Like when we went to Portland, I like stayed on our friend Ben's couch and got to see them and like spend time with friends that I wasn't going to see otherwise. And so I don't know, I won't shit on it. There are shitty parts, but you can opt out of whatever. It's like, choose your own adventure. Right. So, I mean, this goes into the MFA world too. Cause I say like, that's kind of becoming this corporatized thing. And we, we've touched on it already. So I guess we can skip over it, but uh, MFA, we talk workshops, experience, we could talk structure, we could skip it at all. Your what, experience. What, what are you interested in about the MFA? I am curious about your. I'm interested in every writer's point of view on it, really. Like, because, I mean, I oh. have my thoughts on MFA. Like, you know, I don't think it's it's bad and I don't think it's it's there's no malicious kind of setup to it. But there's, you know, there's flaws. There's things that um things that the MFAs emphasize that I think really discourage young people that are trying to break in. Mm -hmm. uh, I've talked about on this podcast, like the emphasis on workshops, this kind of obsession with having other people tell you what, about what they think about your work and the kind mm -hmm. of the maybe too much emphasis on that. And we already said a little bit of like, maybe we could get a little bit more business education, but I know, I mean, Lee and I went to the MFA together. We were in the same cohort. So we literally spent the same amount of time <laughs> like in this, in the same program and, you know, had classes with each other and stuff. But so I imagine it'd be a similar experience, but just, yeah, overall listeners, we have a lot of listeners that are just starting MFAs and then ones that are, you know, fighting with the big tons of listeners. slush piles. Um, yeah. to get in for the first time. But, mm -hmm. yeah. Just your thoughts, I'm, experience. Um, I mean, I have a couple students I'm working with right now um, who are applying to 
MFAs like right now or in the next six months and um, hyperventilating through that process of like the MFA draft and, you know, constantly scrolling. <laughs> I forgot about the uh, Facebook yeah, page, right? dude. The oh my God. MFA oh, MFA Which, cafe. Dude, yes, it's toxic, MFA dude. It's bad. Grad cafe. Yeah. Horrible place. It was a horrible place to live. Then there's an equivalent for people searching for full-time teaching jobs too, <laughs> that oh. you would like always be searching like who's posting a full-time job it's like not healthy but anyway i think for me it's like i don't have blanket rules like don't apply to programs that aren't fully funded or don't apply to programs that are a year it's like i think like i have a friend who just finished um a columbia mfa which is extremely expensive but like obviously has a wonderful cast of instructors and like for him i was like if you can afford it and it, it, it is valuable to you to stay in New York where you're from, close to your family, and you want to have these connections to these professors, then go for it. Like, d- go for it. But I have another student right now who doesn't have a lot of resources to put and is worried already about having to eat and, like, pay for her rent. And I'm like, then do not go to a program because it sounds cool that it's going to cost you $50,000 a year. Yeah. Don't do it. There are plenty of fully funded or very inexpensive programs. Like prioritize, you know, the things that matter to you here. Like, and there's no one size fits all. And like, just figure that what out and you'll eventually do it. Like, I think I applied three times to MFAs because I didn't know what I wanted. And each time I learned, okay, I get in here. I don't really want to go to that. Or I didn't get in here. And you know, uh, I don't know. And- it's just, I can't, I don't, it seems so long ago, like you were saying at the beginning, Andy, but um, I don't know. There's a lot to say about it, but I don't know how to talk about it in brush other than like, make sure you know what you want before you go and have a, have an honest understanding um, of like what your experience will be like and what you'll actually get out of it. Like, don't, you know, have conversations with people who've done it that you actually trust and are going to bullshit you. I don't know. Who have done it recently also. Let's yes, exactly. Not, not yeah, that's a big Good one. Point. I think, <laughs> I think a, a lot of yeah. people, and I think this happened to us too, right? Like you work under a teacher who's your mentor who had like, you know, um, maybe what you, we would think of as like the ideal writer experience. We all were community. Mm-hmm. We all hung out late at night and we sat outside around yeah. the campfire and we wrote poems and we shared them with each other. And like, that's great. That's awesome. Maybe they did that. Um, that is not my experience. Sure. I mean, my experience, I'm, I already know is very different from yours. I mean, you guys even like, I don't know. I hear that you guys partied at all. Um, <laughs> that was not my experience of my cohort. I felt like the delinquent in the crowd but um i'm particularly curious about your workshop experience in fact i am especially curious and you can decline this (laughs) i'm gonna throw that out there I, i am particularly curious about um your worst workshop experience I don't, I don't, I can't think of a singular terrible workshop. I think it helped that I did a lot of workshop as an undergrad. So I knew what to expect going in. Like I wasn't tender anymore. Like I, I had been submitting a lot and had gotten rejected a lot. And so I kind of like was ready for that to a certain degree. It helped. 
Um, but I don't think I really, I think I had that sort of like kumbaya sense of what it would be like, like you, your professors had. And I think I was a little like shell shocked by how much vitriol there was and like <laughs> competitiveness about things that didn't matter. And, um, yeah, it was hard for me. That part was really difficult for me. Um, because I think like ultimately you should be supporting one another and you know it's just like yeah there's all this other stuff that gets the, the social aspect is really complicated oh the social it's, aspect is huge it's it's the biggest thing really yeah. Yeah. it's really all it is right <laughs> yeah I mean, it's like, who does the teacher like because let's be honest right. we are uh, we are writers and we need praise. We specifically need <laughs> sure. the praise of our instructors. Sure. We need to be the best in the class and we need to be the teacher's pet. Right? Like I refuse to believe that there was a single student in any MFA program out there so, who so, wasn't so, in the same position as me. So, sure. Sophie telling like, on herself. No. Here, yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah, I need to be like approval. <laughs> I mean, I think like that is such an important part of like encouraging you to keep doing this crazy thing that is trying to be a writer. It's like someone has to tell you like it's worth all of the suffering, right? Like, and whether you incur that incur, encounter that person in your MFA or before, like wherever it is, like, it is important. And so if you're not getting that, then I, I imagine that would be a terrible MFA experience. I felt supported by Chris, who was our, our main faculty member and was extremely generous with his time. And like, I, yeah, I don't have any complaints about, faculty necessarily I think it was just like we lived in a town where there were no like-minded people it was like what were this Andy like 20 of us like across three years maybe less 22 but just... that fluctuated because people kept dropping out but right <laughs> yeah that was not something that I experienced that's interesting to me I feel like but there was also never any threat of not passing well no there was yeah. yeah there was never no no there was not that there was okay. never, it was not possible. <laughs> you would have to not, turn, like, you would have to just have no th thesis, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah. We've, some, no, we're not going to talk about that happened at ours. <laughs> yes, that yeah. has happened. That has happened. Yeah. Somebody just shows up and just, there's nothing there. <laughs> there's nothing to turn in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, the, the whole thing, I mean, yeah, it's not like a bad thing. I just, it's, I know why people are frustrated by it, but it is this kind of, if you want to be in that world, you, you have to kind of go through it almost the way mm -hmm. the industry has now been set up since kind of the explosion of MFA programs that if you're not going through an MFA program, mm -hmm. you're going to be looked at the other way. You're not right. going to be passed over for the fellowship or whatever it is. Even if you are a big time writer, if you don't have that master's degree, to be able mm -hmm. to teach in the program or something, they're not going to put you in there. You see this right. with a lot of like, you know, in the poetry, at least the Instagram has taken over everything. So you see a lot of Instagram people that sell a lot of books, publish a lot of books. It's not very good stuff we've talked about on this podcast, but you know, they're not getting hired at these jobs or these prestigious places because they just don't have the degree mm -hmm. that like literally the state requires you to have to be in the faculty. Yeah. And like Lisa, you go in there and it is this kind of baptism by fire at a lot of programs, <laughs> depending what it is, if you not understanding that there is these kind of social dynamics that play into it. And you kind of goes back to what Lee was saying, Lee, about blocking out this noise where it's like social media comes into the workshop a lot, in a, especially in more recent years where it just 
they're comparing what's happening in this room to like what's happening out in those timelines out there. People are scrolling and it, that gets into it. And like you said, it's really not anybody's fault. It's just how, you know, it, we kind of all fell into this, the way the system is set up and now we're all just trying to mm-hmm. fucking deal with it. Like, uh, I don't know. I'm just I mean, always curious. Yeah. I, I will say like with our program, I was very grateful that we got all that teaching experience. I'm pretty sure I would not have gotten a teaching job if we hadn't had a crazy amount of uh, teaching responsibility while we were doing our program. So um, I think that was definitely, oh, I think I would have felt lost. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot. What was, we were like teaching two classes, right? Yeah. Two every semester uh, for basically your last two years, the whole time. Yeah. So you, by the time you get out of there, you teach, probably you could teach a good, um, eight to if you wanted to push it you could teach eight to 12 sections by the time you graduated that's you know Mm -hmm. which is a lot for compared to some mfa programs out there and we Mm -hmm. did have a ours was three years where lee and i yeah so we had an extra year to kind of and then really that does help a little bit having that extra year to finish the thesis if you're doing teaching on top of everything right you can set that up so that you do have a nice block of time that last year to really get your project done to the point where you do something like Lita, where you can, okay, you can do project, you're working on your MFA and that can become your first book. You know, mm-hmm. you can actually do that. And there's, you know, pay to play ones. There's all that kind of shit. Um, like Lee said, if you're really struggling then maybe it's not, and you don't need, it. if you're a fiction writer, especially, and you're not necessarily doing the literary side of fiction, that was always a contention. I know in a few workshops, people that were more into the pop side of things and they would get, reamed for it in like workshops and things but it's like yeah dude, yeah. But like they're into like you know fantasy or whatever and they want to be a better right. writer at fantasy like you know like yeah it does kind of shut off certain side because it does focus mainly on the literary but yeah so if you're somebody that wants to write fantasy novels do you need to go to get an fa probably not you know you can go to new york or yeah you can just do the soliciting yeah. and keep working I mean, there are also alternatives there are like right. other kinds right. of like online writing workshops that do you know, mm-hmm. um, specialize in like fantasy writing or in right. young adult or whatever it is. Um, can, and I would say also like yeah. MFAs are also starting to welcome that a little bit more. Well, they have mm-hmm. to, uh, they got to get those butts in right. seats, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They got That's the true. Now. Yeah. And this, well, if you teach creative writing now, a lot of your students, your undergrads are writing genre. Like it's a minority that is writing literary fiction, which right. is like, I found that difficult because I was like, I don't read that. I wasn't trained in how to co- like coach a student how to write a plot-driven book about, uh, I don't know, another world. Like, right. it, that isn't yeah. literary. I, I don't know. So it's it's like, oh, do we have to start training our MFA students differently and teaching? Like, because it's a different, it is a different type of writing. The way it works is different, I think, at a yeah. certain level. So. Yeah. It's when structure becomes yeah, more know. emphasized because you're telling a, like a sequence of events as opposed to the kind of right. consciousness expansion or playing yeah. around leisurely Action in somebody's head. Action becomes very important. Yeah. Action. You're like pre, pre-plotting, pre-planning, yeah. writing things out, which is not how I work. But yeah, I don't know. What What is your process like with uh, your kind of how you – you know, do you get an idea? Do you just kind of fuck around and find out? Do any outlining? Mm. Does it vary? Kind of what's your process with your? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the lessons of the pandemic was that um, being out 
amongst the world and people is a big part of my process. Like experiencing things like sitting at a bar and talking to a stranger, like whatever, just encountering human beings in some way. And I felt throughout the pandemic when we weren't doing that, I felt rather just sort of um, disinterested in writing, (laughs) generally speaking. Um, And I really, really had to force myself to sit down every day and just write something, Um, which is another part of my process. I think I've always been a very incremental writer. I can't sit for three hours at a computer and just write. This just doesn't work. So like 30 minutes, an hour maybe, like every day, whatever it is, like I'm not good at being that kind of long-winded writer. So, um, I mean, that's how I wrote my first book was just like sitting down every day a little bit and paying attention. I always kept a journal that I would like write down little ideas or things like images or lines I heard or something. Um, and then eventually it just accrues into this thing and, you know, becomes, Oh, I have a thing that could be a novel or like there were two different things I was working on. I was like, Oh, these are connected. And, um, so I don't pre-plot anything. I don't ever know like what I'm going to be doing before I have like the image or the character or whatever it is. And I just sort of like write into the space. Um, so yeah, I'm not like extremely process oriented maybe is well, the answer. Like I said, listeners, a true literary talent at the beginning there, you just dive in, see what happens there and you make it into something <laughs> you mold it. Right. She said, like Lee was saying, no, not necessarily plotting all these points, not necessarily writing towards the last sentence or something, Mm -hmm. but just having at it and letting the mind kind of work, you know, work its way out. You write yourself into a corner. Okay, well, now you have to write yourself out. That kind of, you know, that old school Norman Mailer stuff. Well, just have at it. See what fucking happens, right? Like just who? maybe we're going to go off a cliff here. Who knows? We'll see. We'll throw that one out, start a different, you know, like it's, it's, and we talk about this on the podcast a lot, like the kind of sense of discovery where it was like, okay, we're using these preset structures. So language, the phonetic symbols and all that, you know, we all have a good Mm -hmm. understanding of that, but then we're like kind of discovering, like we're using that to kind of map out or, you know, they always, that's the phrase everybody uses in scholarship, the mapping of consciousness or, Mm -hmm. or the story or the character or something gets mapped out slowly. But yeah, I'm just always curious writer's process. Lee said she's got a schedule she sticks to morning, just chunks at a time. And then, you know, six months, eight months, a year later, you have a novel and you're like, Oh shit. Like, I, I guess this is a novel now, you know? But yeah, are I'm you a, yeah. are you a revise as you go person or a, a revise the full thing fully after or both? Uh, both, but I'm yeah. definitely be, I am very slow in part is that part of that is because I'm constantly revising, which is what they always tell you not to do. I feel yeah. like when you're a young writer, just no, like, I'm very much it. the same. Really, uh, Andy and I have this fight because he's like, yeah, no, we just get it that. down. Yeah. Just get it down. It doesn't matter if it's shit. I'm like, it matters. Yeah. It, it, it's it personality. Matters. Like, I can't. Right. Like, like I can't move on. You couldn't on do it. Just, yeah. It's just, I think it, that's what it is. So I'm always, I'm always curious about the revision process because I know that it's wildly different um, it's for everybody. So I mean, I think uh, just like being okay with revision in some form is important because I feel like young writers are so um, against that or like, they don't want to re- rework and revise just generally to paint a broad sort of swath of, of the young writer culture. But like, oh, and I feel like think we're such hot shit. You know, well, yeah, like when we've just written something, we're like, yes, the hottest shit. This is going to blow up the workshop. Right. 
It's perfect. They're not going to know. They're not going to know what hit them. <laughs> yes, exactly. But it's not, rarely is that true. And yeah. so like, no, never. <laughs> being okay with tearing it apart. I think that's my favorite thing to teach. Like, uh, like revision is important and it's okay. And don't be self-precious with your work. Like learn detachment. Like right. you're going to become a good writer by detaching yourself emotionally from the work and like hacking at it and being honest and true to the story and what the story needs, not like whatever your feelings are about it. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Revision is important. <laughs> that's yeah. the takeaway. <clears throat> yeah. It's yeah. And it's always like, yeah, younger writer. That's like, Oh, I don't want to revise. It's usually not a, a seasoned writer. That's like, no fuck. Yeah, no, it's, you got to revise. Lee, we have a few more questions. I know we're over time. Are you good to chill for a little bit longer? Do you got to run? I got a little bit more time. Okay, yeah. The last couple of things I wanted to, the leaving higher ed, what made mm-hmm. you decide to take that leap? Cause it is scary. I mean, we're both Sophie's considering it now. She's still kind of hanging on. I was kind of forced into leaving higher ed. You did it by choice. This kind of, yeah. You know, why the, is the grass greener? I mean, I think it was my hand was forced in a certain way. Like, uh, you know, it's I was teaching at Clemson for a couple years, and that was honestly a really great gig as far as like full time lecture gigs go. I got to teach in the honors college. I taught creative writing. I never taught comp, which I can say was no offense to comp students, but the actual teaching the classes is brutal. Yeah, comp yeah. sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that great was going to move my mouth and not actually have words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the things that you're saying, but not saying we're here. Um, but then I moved down to new Orleans cause I really wanted to live somewhere where I actually wanted to live, which is not something you get in academia. You're sort of just, you're, you go wherever you can get a job. But I was over that. And so I moved to New Orleans and was teaching remotely because this was during the pandemic, pandemic, so I could still um, retain my position for a while. And then they said I couldn't after a certain amount of time and I would have to come back and I wasn't willing to do that. And so I applied for a few positions that happened to exist in New Orleans and Baton Rouge. And Baton Rouge is about an hour and a half to two hours away from New Orleans. Um, and I did get a full-time teaching job there, but it was comp. And it was, I think, the first semester back. And this is a Southern school. And so there was no social distancing. I think the desks were about six inches from each other in a basement. And a week into the term, Hurricane Ida hit. And I had to go back and evacuate to (laughs) Alabama for two weeks. And so it was a lot um, to try to, you know, teach remotely from a cabin in Alabama that didn't have good internet. Also worrying if my home was going to exist anymore because it was a category five hurricane and uh, also worrying about COVID up to that point and also making $32,000 a year, I think was what I was being paid five comp classes. I think I was teaching actually. (laughs) And, um, Per semester. Oh, that's really not enough for teaching that many. (laughs) And I was driving two hours one way. And um, no chance of promotion. Sort of the typical lectureship. And um, I just was like, I can't can't do this anymore. (laughs) I think I hit the breaking point. You know, like, I can't survive on this. Like, I should be able to get a teaching job in New Orleans. Um, All these things. And so I was like, I just need to be able to... 32 at the time I was like I would like to be able to pay my bills 
um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know, it's extremely stressful. I'll always be worrying about money. I didn't want to do it. And I love teaching. Um, but yeah, I, I was like, I, at that point I started Googling, uh, writing jobs that pay over, I don't even know what the number was, like $60,000 yeah. a year remote. And I think like a job working for, it was a government contractor had posted a communication, senior communications job. And I didn't know what that meant, but <laughs> I read the, I read the vague job description and I was like, I can do this. Like I can do this. And so I just like went through that process and like got a, clearance and like security clearance and like did all the things to become a corporate person and uh have sort of been doing that for a little while in addition to teaching in this like low res ish capacity but yeah that's sorry for talking a long time but that's sort of what's happened um but yeah it was it has been difficult to sort of detach myself from my identity as like a person in academia that teaches and like talks about writing and you know, there's no romance to, to the job I have now, but there certainly is, even if you're like suffering in academia. How is it uh, like balancing the kind of, I know, I guess you said you're doing remote work for the most part. Mm-hmm. How is that mm-hmm. like balancing that on top of, yeah, you know, getting your projects done, dealing with the meetings, the conferences, you know, the pitch meetings with the agents and the editors. And how is that like when you're balancing that? Is that... I mean, I'm lucky that I'm still working with my agent on my first book and I trust her and I feel just um, very lucky to continue to have a, a working relationship with someone who I, you know, I know that my work is in good hands and that like we have the same vision. She works with poets. She works with sort of lyrical essayists. So I know she's not just like trying to make a lot of money and turn my book into this poppy thing, right. which Bestseller. is rare. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, she's great. So that's awesome. we've had a continuous relationship and I've been working on a proposal for a nonfiction book and a set of stories. And all of that has been through, uh, you know, having a manuscript I put together on like a robotics, uh, during the pandemic and throwing that out and, you know, slowly chipping away at this manuscript that I didn't know was going to be a book. I mean, it's been this like long drawn out process of where I didn't think I was writing or didn't feel like writing for a long time. And now I finally think I have a book. So anyway, that's been the general writing process recently, but it's having a full-time job five days a week with like, you know, the sad number of days Americans get off like two weeks or whatever. Like it requires being much more regimented about my time and like getting up early and sitting at the desk. And um, that's been a, there's been a somewhat of a learning curve with that. Yeah. I can't imagine like, and listeners can hear this, right? Like you see Lee is doing it. Like she's doing this and like, you have to have that schedule, like that little, you know, it's a cliche now that writers will tell you, protect your writing time. Yeah. Like you have mm-hmm. to kind of stay on that little regiment to get your 30 minutes in before the shift starts or, you know, you got to clock in on the work from home thing or whatever it is. And it's just, yeah, because then, you know, you it's not like you can just do it on the clock cause you're distracted, you know, like you can't just like take an hour or something. Right. But But also I think the thing that I've learned is like be generous with yourself and understand like there are, it's okay if you don't want to write for six months. Like it doesn't mean you're not a writer and like sometimes your priority isn't writing or like if you have a kid, like I remember reading um, something that Christine Scott wrote um, 
about being a mother for the first time and having to like have 10 minutes or something or go in a closet to write. Like she used to write, have all this time. And then she had the kid and it was crying, you know, it was like, and I think I'm hyper aware of like how these changing circumstances of your life can like totally alter your relationship to your writing. And like, yes, keep a schedule, but also like there's a pandemic and you just want to like go out and have dinner with someone. Cause you haven't seen this person in eight months and like you want to live, like fucking go do it. You know, like, right if you really want to write, you'll come back to it in some way too, you know, like don't force yourself to That's do something you true. don't want to do. I was, I'm curious now that you mentioned it, like, did you have like a slump, like after that first book where you were kind of struggling to get started on the next one or the next of project course. or like, <laughs> there, was a, like there was a fucking pandemic. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like your life ceased to exist as we know it. Yeah, well, like. well, I remember some people were talking about, I'm sure you heard this conversation about how like creative they were during the pandemic. And I was like, Oh my God, no, that is not what I'm fucking feeling at all. Like, yeah, it's like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, good, good for you guys. Like, uh, I, yeah, that wasn't my experience. I think I, I, like I said, I, I was like struggling to find anything I really wanted to write about. I did have this project at some point that I was interested in, but, uh, as is normal in writing, like the projects fizzled, but, um, I think on like a sort of existential level, I was just like, what is the point of working on something when it, you know, the world can shut down in a day or like, I think something like, and then no one reads your book or like, I think I, at the time, right after things shut down, I was thinking about what if we all die? Yeah. Well, that's true. But I was like, (laughs) it was just like the planet is just fucking falling apart. And why am I doing this thing with the illusion that there is going to be a lasting document or like my people are going to know who I am. Like, you know, there's this self delusion that happens in writing of like, this is a permanent thing I'm creating. And I think I struggled with that, like the production of an item that will be in a bookstore or like a thing that will be in the library of Congress where it's like, but who's actually going to read that? There's no planet or the, you know, it's like, so I think I just struggled to find meaning in it. Right. Which is I, hackneyed, but like, I just, I was like, why? I'd rather just go for a walk or like sleep in or do things that normal people do. I don't know if either of you struggle with that at all, but. Oh yeah. I work yeah. from home uh, <laughs> on a very irregular schedule. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's been really good for, uh, for me in terms of writing. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, yeah, during the pandemic, no, I was not. I mean, I also, like, was not writing for, like, two years after my MFA. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I uh, can't. That's normal, mm-hmm. too. I've, I've heard a lot of writers oh, say yeah. something like um, that. MFA yeah. takes a lot out I of I tried. Yeah. I mean, I was writing. Like, I still wrote not as regularly. And mm-hmm. it was, like, a struggle. Um, but, but yeah. It, it does yeah. it, like there's been some like, Tony Morrison has that essay read about novel depression like at the end there's like this natural novel mm-hmm. like kind of when mm-hmm. you're finished with a project Stephen yes. King calls it like shedding a skin like a part of you is off like you're just Ugh, get yeah. that away from me like I'm yeah. done with it kind of thing and then there's like this little period that's like just like uh you're kind of looking for the next project you don't quite know where to go but then a pandemic yeah. on top of that where the world yeah. ceases to exist as you know it so you can't just go out to a bar and get some drinks and be like ah, oh, you know i just finished this novel i'm struggling to get the next project or whatever you're literally mm-hmm. get dwell on it <laughs> like i'm never gonna write anything again like, yeah i'm never gonna do the world's over. in that regard i would say no i love the pandemic for that i hated going out 
and seeing people. <laughs> yeah. Um, I loved having excuse. I loved covering my face. I loved going to the grocery store with my face covered and being like, I don't want you to see me. I don't want to see your ugly face. You don't have to engage. It was stay away from me. Like everything about this was actually really good for me. Um, With the exception of maybe like some sort of hypochondriacal tendencies. But beyond that, you know, I actually really, (laughs) really liked it. Uh, I can say I enjoyed that too to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. I Very recently, a... I was like, "Oh man, we're done with masks now." <laughs> so good. Sorry. Didn't want to get rid of it. Uh, <laughs> Sophie knows how I feel about that. I won't even say it. But there's, uh, cool. yeah, okay. So we hit that. That's all normal. Last thing, publishing industry. We talked about. I was like, kind of this. We've been dancing around it. The social media aspect, you have to market yourself. There's more DIY stuff than there used to be. You know, you go through all the hoops and stuff like that. Like, I just want your opinion. Like, what do you think the future of this industry is going to look like? Or, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, whatever. But I just mean, like, you know, where do we go from here? Like, when the books are diminishing in terms of people don't care about them anymore, they don't hold the place that they used to hold why in our culture is what he's why right <laughs> why right why bother that wasn't I, there an essay written about that i'm assuming <laughs> yeah. i'm asking that question assuming that we're all going to keep doing it because we can't help it rather we love right. it but just like where does this lead like you, you have to be doing more than just being a writer almost it feels like to even have a chance at success or we want to call it that or just like having like you said like a a document that i was here out in the library of congress registered it's going to be there for as long as civilization exists kind of thing and only you need to know know? (laughs) yes that's all that matters i I just don't know yeah your thoughts somebody who's experienced more of the industry than we have like where do we see it going is there you know self-publishing or this print on demand or the, is the model going to change to this kind of print on demand so you don't have to print up you know five thousand copies and then be stuck with them when they don't sell or i don't know i mean i i having worked for an on-demand book publisher i never saw that take off um at a massive scale so i don't know if that's going to be something um bigger than it is now but i mean i think there's just even since I sold my book, I think there's been a lot of tumult in the industry in terms of like how many books are getting bought and how active agents are and how willing they are to read. I think I was, I was talking with a friend now who's has a novel out to pitch and um, she's just been led on a lot by agents. And um, I, I don't think it's necessarily their fault. I just think that there are fewer editors and all of these publishing houses are merging and that's certainly not good. Um, what was that, that great op-ed um, a few months ago about that, how detrimental that was for writers and the type of writing you would have access to. And I think that's really valid. So I am certainly nervous as I'm not nervous. Like I'm worried about myself, but I, it'll be interesting to see what it's like trying to sell my next book in this climate, which has changed, I think quite a bit in two years. Um, it, and the walkouts at HarperCollins, I think there's a lot of just like change happening in I the industry. I didn't hear so that. the walkouts, what is? Uh... Uh, I'm familiar with that. Do you want to summarize, Sophie? <laughs> but, uh, I'm I mean, completely I, ignorant far, well, about I'm this. Only, this happened. I mean, People walked out because of something they were publishing, or or contract negotiations, no. or pay. Pay. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly um, the nature of their. Um, 
complaints and desires, but I know it's because they aren't sufficiently compensated, which isn't a surprise to anybody. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think all of that is good and things are changing um, for employees and authors alike. And I, I don't really know. I mean, I think I am very much outside of like what's going on. Um, I'm not on Twitter, really. I have a Twitter account, but I don't use it. I don't know what these conversations are. And I think right now that's better for me to be outside of it while I try to figure out my own relationship to my writing and um, what kind of person I want to be in the writing community. I think right now, like, I enjoy mentoring and, like, having an intimate relationship and still being, and, like, having a small group of friends I can talk to or, like, you guys, like, having these spaces but um, as far as a larger group, I don't, I don't know. I, I've stayed out of it, and I think for now that's healthy. And I don't know. I can't make any predictions about the future of the publishing industry. But I, I hope that we revert back to more, a more like openness to experimental work. I, I would love to see that. I don't know. I just feel like, um, like with Giancarlo at Tyrant Books passing away, I think in the past year and a half, I think that's been an awful thing for experimental, interesting voices. And I don't know if anyone's filled that void yet. I don't know because I'm not so outside of it, but um, it's yeah. I don't know if anybody even can, can fill those voids like they would have come in like they did, like Tyrant did all those years ago, kind of come in and start exclusively publishing something like that you know you could do that but it's going to be such a long road compared to what it was even in the 90s if you were going to start a new magazine or we could talk that magazine implosions um <laughs> like but yeah I, I don't know i was just curious for your take like yeah this thing that we're all orbiting around trying to grapple with because not only are you grappling with the things you always did where it's like okay this is a corporation and you're trying to make art and they're trying to sell the art there's going to be things you're going to have to give up there's going to be things they want changed right like you're dealing with a big conglomerate now so that's always been a part of it but now it's getting to like that conglomerate is not making as much as they used to right they're not able to hire as many editors they're not able the editor quality has gone down in a lot of places um yeah, I mean, I see books with typos. We we read books on this podcast. Sophie and I find typos all the time in these major presses releases, and it's kind of unbelievable. <laughs> like we've we reached do this point. also yeah. always aim for the cheapest paperback. We can. that's true. Yeah, but there's just always just including the, the occasional print on demand. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah, and all. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. So there is, you know, it looks bleak, but I think like there is like we're in, we're in an apex. We're going to reach a moment where we have like the industry has to adapt to the new climate in some way. And they've kind of been dragging their feet on it. Well, and it's just well, and also mm-hmm. that happens so quickly for a huge corporate conglomerate like a publishing house, one of the big big four now. Right. Like like for them to just pivot and shift to something different that's going to take a decade like they're not going to be able to just shift this huge behemoth like in directions in the water or whatever so that's going to be a lingering effect over the next decade here what is publishing going to become i I don't know uh but we're going to keep plugging plugging away at it and again it's going to look different i think if you write like prose versus, you know, if right. you write poetry, unless like you're a huge big name poet, you're probably not getting published by like FSG, for example. Right. You're probably, um, you know, going to Red Hen, going to Tin House, going to one of the places that's going to publish your first book, um, going to Four Way, 
Um, Even those, yeah. I mean, you know, that I mean, those it, are dwindling, like kind of like those are like kind of because you have to have an endowment. You yeah. can't. We did this with magazine. Right, yeah. I texted about that big blow up in like the magazine, literary magazine, where it's like. Yes, like we have to, you know, we people are constantly creating new literary magazines. I applaud that effort. I like the idea behind it. I think people should be doing this. But then at the same time, it's like a lot of them are started by like overzealous grad students that don't quite know what it takes to actually run a journal sustainably, i.e. not losing money and just doing a labor of love thing where like Mm -hmm. you're spending all of your free time going through this thing, running the website, making sure you book the tables at AWP, paying the Well, and yeah, and there's no running a journal without spending money. Right. Right. So like this kind of, so now the only journals that can survive. So you start from a deficit. Yeah, well, the only ones that survive are ones that have university endowments that they can glom off of so they just have money to operate. Or the big ones like Harper's, New Yorker, like the ones that sell enough through subscriptions and donations that they can sustain a big global distribution for a magazine and people's mailboxes every month, you know. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to talk that magazine or not, Lee. I know we're running over time here. <laughs> we're, we're yeah. You've been very generous. I, I am curious <laughs> to hear i mean this is the <laughs> this is the, like, you're laughing like i'm gonna say something crazy i'm not <laughs> start talking about cock and endless balls again um i missed that episode um, i'm gonna have to go re-listen uh, <laughs> well little alan ginsburg for you okay it was mostly about cock and endless balls um we, we talked about this gratuitously yeah yeah i mean i want to i want to i've had adequate bourbon to just want to know what you're reading and watching right now reading Uh, and watching um i am reading this sort of interesting book that i put down years ago and then i decided to pick up because i can't find anything i want to read um it and of course the name is going to escape me but it's a sort of blend of nonfiction and fiction um, about women in um, turn of the century, Philadelphia, New York, um, uh, black women and their sort of like sexual freedoms and sort of experimentations with romance that was often coded as like um, socially undesirable. Um, But the way it's being framed in this text as it was a sort of like reaction to the confines of slavery. And this was like a very cool experiment happening in these neighborhoods. Um, and it is, it's, it's sociological, um, it's based on sociological research. And so a lot of it is, um, I don't even know how to explain it. I feel like you just need to pick up this book and I'll like re- type you the name later. But um, the style is really interesting. It's not dry. It's sort of a reimagining and, I think it's mostly third person of what these women were doing, like in the bedrooms, obviously there was no idea of what that actually was happening there, but like, it's really evocative and powerful and immersive and something I needed. Um, And I will get the name of it. Of course I'm forgetting, but watching, I'm probably watching the opposite, which is a lot of garbage. Um, Love it. That's what I want to hear. Since the beginning of the pandemic, my friends in New York and I have had a weekly date where we watch a reality show together. Which one? I like that. Um, we just finished Bachelor in Paradise, which was very rewarding. Very nice. And now we're watching um, uh, season two of 
Oh my God. What's it? Her name. You, you've seen it on Netflix. She is, uh, <laughs> I can say it. it's not unorthodox. It, she's like the head of the modeling agency and she was an Orthodox Jew. And now she's very wealthy and like, Oh, works in fashion. What's it called? You don't say. I don't it's a great I... reality show. Is it like Project um, Runway or is it like? And it's more about her life and her daughter's lives uh, okay. post this experience. I feel um, like I just recently watched the trailer for this. You did because it's being pushed hard. It just came out last week. I just anyway, watched it. It's extremely trashy. and um, I love that. Yeah. What about you guys? Anything good? always trash tv i mean i like to i like to keep up with that stuff i've always been into movies and stuff so i try to keep up with the stuff prestige tv but i mean yeah dude i i think for writers especially i've heard a couple writers say this where they say like oh what are you watching and they ask them on like podcasts or interviews or something and they're like uh, a lot of garbage trash tv and they're just like because it's just like a way to shut off the brain just for like two down. hours <laughs> Especially if you're fretting over something, you're stuck on something in your work, just like turning on that reality TV show and just uh -huh. letting the brain melt like a little bit, mm -hmm. defrost or whatever it is. And it's a, it's essential. A, yeah. And you just get this nice little, I just need to see people calling each other bitch and like throwing drinks in their face or whatever. I am like, thrilled. I'm going to watch as soon as I'm finished with grading, I'm going to watch the new season of Too Hot to Handle. Oh, yeah, that looks because um, I love the idea of this uh, reality show where the idea is like you, you know, the point is always to watch people trying to fuck and then you take <laughs> away that they're like they're now not allowed to. And so that's a really fun thing. Um, I'm enjoying that. I just watched all of Wednesday. Was it good? I enjoyed it. I was in a really uh, dark place. So that was a nice uh, single day binge of my life. But, yeah, okay. This is everything I needed. It helped you. It Indian matchmaking did that for me um, when I first got this tooth. That one is a thrill. So that, yeah, it was. It really was. Oof. What is that? <laughs> they literally just matchmake couples? Mm hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. I, I watched the thing. I, my wife and I we watched Ninety Day Fiance like every week. Oh yeah, yeah. Of all of the spinoffs, all of it. Yeah, the Pillow Talks. That's like our weekly. Like we watch that. Keeping Let's the see. romance alive, Mandy. <laughs> it is nice yeah. when you're watching as a couple and you can talk about how much better a couple you are than like this couple <laughs> on that that like signed up. <laughs> To be on reality TV, sold their soul for like ten grand to be on like a reality show for like two weeks. It's like, uh, I guess you can make a lot of money off of it now. All these people become Instagram stars after and start selling ads and stuff on Instagram and on cameo, make a cameo yeah, living. Cameo, especially the ones that like, yeah, like the, the the ones that are actually coming to America or whatever. So the ones like in Nigeria or whatever, like you can yes. make way more money than if you weren't on the show, like kind of thing. Yeah, like. Yeah, the american dream yeah it's kind of uh it's and it's it's gotten so big to the point now where it's like you can kind of tell it's fake like the produce yeah. like producer fed storylines and stuff where you're just kind of like this is fake as shit right like this isn't a real storyline like am i supposed to believe like for the last two years their whole fucking storyline is like the same thing that it was in the season they came on like they're trying to have a baby or whatever like yeah okay <laughs> 
two two. You got to get hired as yeah. their new writers. Yeah, if anybody's looking, yeah, I'm available. <laughs> if anybody's hiring, <laughs> listening, yeah, I'm available. Uh, I can do it. Get in that. You ever thought about that? Getting into like the film or television side? I of don't the know writing? how you would. The people I know who have who are success in that, they wrote magazine articles that were then sold um, to film and TV agents. But I, I mean, I would definitely be open. But I think that might be even harder than selling a novel. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely definitely is. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling really inspired to like go watch Laguna Beach. <sighs> yeah. We should all go. Yeah. We should all go watch Laguna Beach. Wind down. Yes. Uh thank you Re-acquaint for doing this. ourselves with 2006. <laughs> yeah, thank you for doing this, Lee. Uh it's been great. Sorry we went over. Uh lastly, where can our listeners find you and your stuff? Handles, website, we're going to link your book and all in the, in the description of this podcast, but uh, your website yeah. and social the website, media. Um, I unfortunately have an Instagram, but uh, yeah, you can just click on the page or Google me. It should come up. We'll, but, we'll link uh, your website then too. Is it leemadalone.com? Mm-hmm. leemadalone.com. Mm-hmm. And then your handle at uh, Instagram is... It's embarrassing. I should You should just write it down. It's something ridiculous. <laughs> We want you to say it. Sex sixty nine. Like it's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's what an ex boyfriend made for me, and I kept it because it is perfect. It's it's book slut sixty nine. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's live laugh Lee Lee. It's good, laugh yeah. Lee Lee. Yeah, it's really brilliant. It's the pinnacle of uh, my writing career, I think. But anyway, a good fun. But thank you guys yeah. for having no, me. Thank you. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.